boogeyman is real, and you found him. All right, you primitive screwheads, listen up. What's blood for, if not for shedding? I'm your number one fan. I like to dissect girls. Did you know I'm utterly insane? We all go a little mad sometimes. Be afraid. Be very afraid. Seven days. <laughs> I am Dracula. We have such sights to show you. I said, I'm not gonna hurt you. I'm just gonna bash your brains. I am the eater of wolves and of children. What's in the fucking box? They're coming to get you, Barbara. One by one, we will take you. Never get out of bed again! You gotta be fucking kidding. It rubs the lotion on its skin or else it gets the hose again. Welcome to prime time, bitch! Welcome, welcome, horror fans. It is Wednesday, 7 p.m. Central Time, and it's time for another episode of the Week in Horror Podcast, the only podcast that's hanging one foot off the crazy train. And if you, dear horror fanatic, are listening to us at the top of the week on Sundays, remember, we do this live every preceding Wednesday right here on YouTube, so we hope to see you in the live chat. Join us. It gets pretty crazy. This week, we are looking back at select horror films released February 18th through February 24th. So thank you all so much for joining us on your Valentine's Day, because we're recording this on Wednesday, so it's Valentine's Day, and this will surely be a bloody good time. I am JL, and I am holding down the fort. Uh, the boys are busy, but I think we're going to have a a good, good show. I really, really do. And I appreciate it, you know, that y'all are, that y'all who are, I guess, you know, choosing to just spend your Valentine's Day with me. Uh, I know there's a lot of couples that are probably in the chat, so I do appreciate seeing everybody. Uh, you all rock. So, you know, thank you very, very much. Uh, let me see. Uh, uh, we got a bunch of stuff going on. Yeah, so so a bunch of stuff going on in the live chat that I want that actually I, I've seen. I've seen the message there, and I want to get there real quick. But first and foremost, let's make sure we put up that, uh, that Patreon banner um, and make sure that we got... Oh, actually, wait. Let's do this because... Oh, no, no, no. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Okay, so, boom. There's our Patreon banner. All those amazing people, all their names that are helped to, help to make this show possible. We do appreciate your support, y'all. Thank you very, very much. Um, you can check out the link to our Patreon down in the description. Patreon.com slash Horror if you'd like to support the show. More on that later on. So, But I'm sure a lot of you have already heard that. Uh, nonetheless, I see a bunch of people in the chat. Let me see. Who do we have? Who do we have? We got Casey Cooper. Is here. Good to see you, Casey Cooper. He was first, as well as Travis Brown. This evening, y'all, let the buzz tonight with the buzz. Let's get us let, let us get buzz tonight with the buzz of the evening. Bzz, yes, there's a lot of buzz going on. Good to see you, bud. Thanks so much for hanging out tonight. I do appreciate you being here. Left-handed Jedi, good to see you. Says, two is Barber. I want a buzz cut. Take a little off the top. I love that. Left-handed Jedi, get a, I think we need to update your shipping details because I got a message, and we have some prizes on the way to you, but they've been delayed. So. If you can get me your updated shipping deals, I sent you a message via Discord, but if you can email them to us, weekendhorrorgmail.com, or just message me directly via Discord, you can respond to that message. Uh, let me know. I need to make sure that your shipping deals are correct because I got a message from Teespring saying, yo, we have an issue. So let us know because we got those things prepped and ready to go for you. Um, let me see who else we got here. Charlie Welch is here. Says, yo, yo, for, uh, yo, yo, fiends. Good to see you, Charlie. Thanks so much for hanging out. Um, you know, I tried to do my normal thing. He's like Charlie Welch, the only man on the internet never make a bet with. 
Welchie, you know, good to see you. Uh, it just, I, I guess I double clutched on it. So, but good to see you, bud. Uh, Sally Skeleton is here. Says, why no review of Bloody Valentine movies? Okay, so my Bloody Valentine didn't release near a, in the same week as Valentine's Day. Well, it may have been Valentine's Day or closer when it released, but it did not fall in this week. So, or yeah, I guess yeah, I guess it would say no, no, it would, would have no, but it didn't fall on Valentine's Day. I believe it released before Valentine's Day in preparation so that the run would cover Valentine's Day, but it technically didn't release on Valentine's Day or the same week as Valentine's Day. So unfortunately, that's why we didn't cover. But we did cover My Bloody Valentine er, much, much earlier. I believe we covered that season two. I believe we covered that season two. It's either season one or season two, very early in the show. You know, it was a great Canadian slasher film. Uh, they really kind of like changed the gray, you know, changed uh, a lot of the uh, the subgenres. So, but yeah, unfortunately, not this week. Uh, Joshua Lee, good to see you. This Happy Singles Awareness Day, everyone. Thanks for hanging out, Joshua. Do appreciate that. Elizabeth S, good to see you. Thanks so much for being here tonight. Uh, let me see. Sherry Tilly says, woo, I forgot it was Wednesday. Hey, all good to see you, Sherry. Thanks so much for hanging out. Angel Rivera as well. This is what up, what up, horror fiends. Good to see you, Angel. Thanks so much for being here. John Monahan is hanging out. Good to see you, John. Thanks so much for hanging out with us tonight. Charlie Wells says, give me a happy birthday, JL. LOL, it's this Saturday. He's turning 44. Congratulations, bud. Happy birthday. You're almost halfway, you know, almost halfway to the big 5-0. So uh, congratulations. Uh, happy birthday, Charlie Welch. Uh, I, hope it, I hope it is an amazing Saturday for you. I really, really do. Uh, Casey Cooper says you rock solo jail. Appreciate that, bud. I thank you very, very much. That, 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 that means a lot. Because so, solo, shows are always, solo shows are always really dicey, depending upon what films we're going to talk about, how deep we can get into them. If some of the movies are kind of shallow, and there's not much, it's kind of like they're pretty boilerplate or formulaic in their construction, and there's not much depth to the acting, and they don't really reflect anything major other than the, you know, like basic you know fears or anxieties or concerns or whatever. But there's nothing to really tie it into, like you know the zeitgeist. That's that's tough. You know, it's hard to you know digress on those, and then but without it turning into just like a flat out review, which is what we don't really want to do on this show. You know, we don't want to do just like. Oh, this is what we thought of this movie, and this really like, no. We want to, you know, dig deep into what what they are, and that can be tough sometimes. So I appreciate that, Casey. You rock. Uh, let me see, Cindy Sue. Cindy Sue, good to see you. Thanks so much for being here. Hey, I'm a poet, and I didn't know it. Says, hey, I got into a Noah's Ark argument on Facebook last night. It was fun. Oh, Facebook arguments are always entertaining as hell. They really are. Yeah, sometimes you just want to like, but yeah. <laughs> Oh, uh, let me see. Who else we got in the chat tonight? Uh, Dib Dib is here. It says, Lurk Mode Engaged. Good to see you lurking out there, Dib Dib. It's always nice to have lurkers. Jinju is here. It says, is it really breaking hearts if you're ripping them out? Evening, everyone. You're protecting it by keeping it whole is what it is. That's what it is. And then you put it in a nice little box, and then, you know, you can keep it safe there. Thanks, Jinju, for hanging out. Appreciate you being here, bud. And I think that's it. Uh, let me see. Um, okay, those things are the okay. Joshua Lee says, Not yet. I'll have to hit up jail and Discord later. Those are on the way uh to you, Joshua. Uh, Josh, uh, I promise you that it will be there soon. So I got the notification that they are out, so that those are like out in transit. So you know Teespring like that, but that is getting to you. It should be arriving soon. You know, I don't I don't have a specific date as to when I have a window as to when it will arrive, which it could be early. or I've even had a window and it had a, I've had people say that it arrived early. So, but I promise you it'll be there. I promise you it's on the way. Dan Shires here. It says, proud lurker. Good to see you, bud. 
Thanks so much for hanging out, Dan. All right, buddy, buddy, we have a bunch. Or we have several horror films to talk about. Several that I find intriguing. That I find actually, there's a there's a couple in here that I think we're gonna that we're gonna uh, dive pretty deep in on this. I oh, I wish Eugene was here. I wish Eugene or Johnny was here. Johnny would be fantastic to talk about one of these films because the film itself has such a uh, or the the music selections for the movie are so important as to what the director was trying to say. Johnny's input would have been really fantastic on that. I think it. I think he. He would have had some serious opinions on how that played out. I think it would have been really, really good. Ah, oh, Javier Har is here. It says Jello Jello. Good to see you, Javier. Appreciate you hanging out tonight. Let me see. What I make sure I didn't miss anybody. I really didn't. In a heart-shaped box. Yeah, absolutely, Cindy Sue. In a heart-shaped box. A heart in a heart-shaped box. Absolutely. Uh, I think I got everybody. Yes, I did not miss somebody. All right. Well, thank you all so very, very much for being here with us tonight. Andrew Rivera says, received the mug today. Another great design for the collection. Awesome. I'm glad you enjoyed that. I do love our mug collection. Our coffee mug collection is really, really cool. We got uh, you know, the, uh, the basic mug with the Weekend Horror logo. We've got mug coffee mugs that feature the artwork, feature Joshua Olson's artwork for our, it was a special one. We had our 150th episode limited edition mug. And then we had another one, which is kind of like the Weekend Horror logo, but in like, you know, the Josh Olson style where it's all kind of like gooey and gross and horror style. So really, really good stuff. Sir Cad says, sorry, I'm late. I was watching the end of Lost Highway. What a trip. Yes, it is. And I promise you, we, I, we're going to dive into that. Or at least I'm going to dive into that. Get y'all's opinions on that because that movie has some exploration. It requires some exploration, I think. That's why I, wanted jo- that's why I really wish Johnny was here because the music selection, the music is so important in that movie that Johnny would definitely have an opinion, you know, given the artists that they use and how they formulated that music. So I'm really, really curious. It's an interesting story behind that. We'll get into it later. Well, I promise you we'll get into it later. But first, before we kick off everything tonight, before we kick off the movies we're going to talk about tonight, I found a trailer. Somebody mentioned it to me last week, and then I saw the teaser for it. And then when the, when the actual trailer dropped, I pulled the trailer because, yes, we have to watch this trailer. And if you haven't seen it, yeah, I went ahead and put it on the uh, the terror tube for you. So here we go. I am bringing you first and foremost the trailer for the upcoming horror film Lovely, Dark, and Deep. So I hope you dig this. Let's check it out. Cue up the terror tube. All right. So that was the trailer for Lovely, Dark, and Deep. So fascinating, fascinating little film, and just in time. For the end of the trailer, Eugene is here. <laughs> What's up, everybody? So did you get a chance to see it? I haven't seen the trailer yet. Oh, we just played it. <laughs> I will be back two minutes for comments. <laughs> well, yeah, if you want to if you want to check it out, if you want to mute and you want to check it out on, on your side, I'm gonna talk about it a little bit, then we can get your opinion. So Okay. So first and foremost, thank you very, very much, Joshua Lee, for recommending that trailer. Um, I went, uh, re- recommending the teaser when it came out. I went and checked it out, saw the trailer, and I was like, yes, I am totally intrigued about this. Now, Lovely, Dark, and Deep, uh, written and directed by Teresa Sutherland in their feature-length debut, starring Georgina Campbell, Nick Blood, and Wai Ching Ho. Um, the film follows uh, Campbell's character, Lennon, who is a backcountry back, uh, back ranger starting a new job, brand new job in a national park where in the recent past, a number of fellow rangers as well as members of the public have gone missing. So 
obviously from the trailer, there's a lot of vibes that are going on in that. Uh, I will say this. The film looks phenomenally well shot. I love the cinematography that we see so far. And the trailer didn't give, and it didn't give anything. I don't think it gave anything away. We got a lot of snapshots. We got a lot of tension building. And I'm, I'm liking that they did not spoil anything major. Aside from one little thing. Haha, Aaron Reese. You haven't been on the show in forever, so you don't get to talk shit. Okay, since I thought low, I thought Lonely, Dark, and Deep was the biography of Jail's mom's vagina. <laughs> uh, I don't know what kind of actions my mom is getting. I really don't. I don't know what kind of action she's getting these days. But uh, no, no, you don't get to talk shit when you get on the show. When you come back on the show, then you can talk shit, sir. Anyway, so uh, there was one line. There's one line in the film that. I think kind of may have tipped a tipped the hat a little bit. And that was when uh, the older ranger, like the, like their supervisor states, we let them take. And it's like, what are they? We don't know. It's like, we let them take. And, and we, you know, it's kind of like keeping the balance. It, 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 it harkens back to the, the kind of like the, uh, the, the setup in midnight me train where the balance is kept between the monsters and humanity by humanity, allowing the monsters to kind of like, you know, cull off of the human race so that there's no like epic war erupting or something of that nature um, to kind of like keep the, keep it localized, you know, keep the carnage localized. So I get kind of vibes like that. I also got like Fey vibes. So it's kind of like um, changelings. Yes. Left-handed Jedi. You just said it. Fey. I get Fey vibes. Cause it's like changelings or fairy folk that are stealing people or whatever in that respect. So I got vibes of that, but there's also given the cinematography, given a lot of the uh, a lot of the shots that we saw, and given obviously the the scoring, it sound it, I get Lovecraftian vibes. So like there are these maybe interdimensional horrors that exist in uh, the, in like these remote places and or in this particular place, and it utilizes fear and uh, destabilizing uh, psychological techniques in order to break people down and weaken them mentally, so that they can then be you know grabbed. They wander in the woods and they get grabbed. So because they they use like fear and uh, psychological attacks. So um, that's the vibe that I'm getting. That's the vibe that I get off the film. Now from what I you know, you know stuff like that, yeah. And so I dig what I'm seeing so far. Um, for something so in depth, it can be a little challenging for a first time director. Now, Teresa Sutherland has has uh, a lot of little a little work under her uh, under their belt. So the question then is, you know, making that transition from like doing your doing your little films, doing work for other people, gig stuff like that, to doing a full on feature film is always tough. As prepared as you think you might be, you can it, th things happen. When you're shooting for when you're shooting for like a week or like two weeks, you know that's one thing. But when you're shooting for like three months, four months, especially in you know you know you're shooting on location in the outdoors somewhere like that, you know you never know what can happen. But the film looks fantastic from first glance, and I'm loving that the setup and the story. And uh, what do you think, Eugene? Did you get a chance to watch it? Yeah, so I just watched the trailer, and the trailer looks fantastic. And I don't know if it's just lately trailers have been getting better in horror films like the honestly, the last probably about four that we've watched here have been fantastic it's it can go so many different directions because it can hint that maybe it's something psychological maybe it's something supernatural maybe some like a cosmic horror thing or maybe right. some kind of alien maybe some kind of uh who knows so 
but the fact that there's so many different possibilities is what makes it really interesting. And you keep the premise just basic. Park Ranger, middle of nowhere, in the woods, go. And it seems like he's going to have some really cool reveals, like when she was taking a knee, and you see like the person crawling down yeah. the tree behind him. <laughs> I love stuff like that. I was like, oh, okay. Some really good moments. Mm. And, or when, it, even in the thumbnail that I saw, where it's like Park Ranger outfit, it has this spiky thing coming up. Right. Uh, whatever. That could be hallucination, alien creature. What We don't know. I think, it's I, a, like I think it's a hallucination. I think it is. It's that's a hallucination. What, that's why I'm leaning towards like the cosmic horror aspect of this. Now, Aaron Reese brings up an interesting point here. It's like the intro text is very similar to Missing 411. So they may insinuate what, you know, what, what happens in multiple places. That's right. So if anyone is not familiar with it, are you familiar with the Missing 411 series? Uh-uh. Okay, so Missing 411 is this. It started out as like, I think it was like a book or it was like a podcast, something like that. But this guy who was an ex, who was an ex-law enforcement officer has found that there are cluster events of people who go missing in national parks around the uh, around the United States. So like you, if you if you map out missing person trends in the United States, there there appear to be clusters, clustering effects around the national parks, particularly in Yosemite is is pretty dense. Now where he now that's an interesting little tidbit. Now why would there be clusters there? Because the national parks are dangerous. And if you don't know what you're doing, then you can get hurt or you can disappear. And that happens actually quite often as people go, people vanish without a trace in national parks. Why does this happen? Well, people wander off, people get lost, people go off trail, people get attacked by animals, people fall off cliffs. You know, there's a number of reasons why. And because they attract so many people, you have a high incoming population and a lot of people who are not trained and a lot of accidents happen and people go missing. That's the reason for the cluster. He takes it another direction and he posits things like aliens and Bigfoot. <laughs> and so he kind of goes in that direction. And and he's also like, you know, gone after skinwalkers and stuff like that. So I, I don't subscribe to that. But it's an interesting phenomena. Cluster events of missing people there. And that's essentially kind of like setting up the premise for this one. So it has vibes of like missing 411 where it may, I don't think it's Bigfoot. I don't think it's aliens. I think it is cosmic horror. So which, which is always going to get my attention. So thank you, Aaron Reese, for pointing that out. Absolutely. And uh, Jinju says, wondering if this is an expansion of a short. I think I've seen this story in a short. It, there is a familiarity to it um, because I think there are bits of it that are that are kind of like embedded in our memory from the you know in the past. So I think that's what that's where that's coming from. But if, it wouldn't surprise me if it was a feature-length version of a short that was done. Um, Travis Brown says, "Oh look, it's Eugene who's going to share his Valentine's Day storyboards." We can't show those. No, we can't. You have to go to Weekend Horror After Dark. That's right. Sir Kaz <laughs> says, editors are earning their money. Fuck yes, they are. They are earning their money. And Casey Cooper says, they listen to Weekend Horror about giving... They listen to Weekend Horror about giving away the whole film in the trailer. Let's hope they're listening to the show. Let's really do. <laughs> I, I'll tell you right now that trailer editors... Because trailer editors are different than actual like film editors. Um, tra cutting a trailer is an art form. And to keep mm -hmm. it interesting without revealing too much, whereas you create the intrigue, it's something that's really, really hard to do. And trailer editors don't get their day because they're not they're not usually involved in the feature film. And even that sometimes when they're starting to edit the trailer, the film's not done yet. 
So things that are, oh man, they may not have the monster, like the CGI monster complete, so they can't show the monster, which could be a good thing. Um, so trailer editors really, really should, um, they really should get their due. And I've always believed that it should be a category in the Academy Awards of best trailer, regardless of how good the movie is. Cause we've all seen bad movies, but have really good trailers. You're like, I need to watch the trailer again. <laughs> uh, let's see. And um, uh, Casey Cooper says, ha, Bigfoot is an alien. Yep. And, but Cindy Sue is right. People, people pet the fuzzy cows. They do. And, or they try to take like uh, uh, selfies with bears, you know, just you know, as Jinju says, couldn't be from trying to take selfies with bears. No, nah, it must be something else. Yeah. So, you know, national parks, I've been to many. And if you know what you're doing, they're a lot of fun. You can see a lot of cool stuff and you can have a real blast. But if you don't know what you're doing, it is really, really easy for bad stuff to happen. It really, really is. And when people freak out, their memories get messed up and, you know, people don't report stuff. It's, you know, it's, you know, wacky things like that. Joshua Lee says, the other thing that intrigued me is the paper at the beginning. It opens up with a shot after the, after the title card, it opens up with a shot of, of a person placing a paper on a sign that says, I owe this place a body. Now, I found that really, this is what gives me a lot of a lot of hope for the film that Teresa Sutherland did their homework when it comes to this. I owe this place a body is a mantra that backpackers, um, outdoor survivalists, and and other people in that in that kind of like subgroup, that is a common phrase that is utilized to remind oneself of the balance of nature and where one fits in the balance of nature. That you came from the earth, you will return to the earth. And to and if you and to remind yourself of that so that you don't, if you want to live, you, rem- you remember that that's what's going to happen. So it's a constant reminder to respect the environment that you're in, to respect yourself, and to and to respect that balance between the two because what you know, you can as easily destroy it as, as quickly as it can destroy you. So that's kind of like a a hiker or a backpacker's mantra, like you know, with rangers or forest stewards or even the scouts. You know, which is where I initially heard it, you know, plus the whole like, you know, leave only footprints, kill only time, no trace, you know, uh, no trace, no impact camping, stuff like that. That's kind of what that that's where that falls in line. So definitely. Um, let me see. A horror only fans. No, we don't need a horror only fans, although it would be hilarious. It would be. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it would. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But I'm I'm very, very curious. I'm re- I'm really digging it. And I like what I'm seeing so far. Um, I'm saying, you know, but I've been disappointed before. I've been hurt before. And on this Valentine's Day, I've been hurt before by horror <laughs> films. So I'm about I'm about 90 10 on this film. I will ask XYZ films, do not release any more trailers. Leave it at that one. Do what they did with the ritual. Do what they did with the ritual. Release one trailer, okay? And maybe some teasers to kind of like satellite around it, but don't release anything more. The the key to to a movie like The Ritual was that we never, ever got a sense of what the monster was until we saw the film. That's what made that movie so fucking great. When you finally see that, that body composite pagan monstrosity come out of the woods and you're like, holy shit. Because you are not prepared, given the setup right there. You're thinking, <laughs> given the setup, you're thinking this is just a cult. You know, it's like, oh, idiot backpackers, you know, fall prey to cult. No, idiot backpackers fall prey to pagan god is what that was. So it was kind of like, holy shit. And yes. so, yeah, 
don't spoil anything else xyz i you know don't we, we got enough i see i agree and a movie should get one bowling trailer your two or three minute one and then you get your 15 to 30 second spots which should compose composite prime primarily of stuff used in the trailer and then whenever you cut a trailer you shouldn't have to use the last 30 minutes of your film right because there's exactly. nothing like you watch a trailer a couple times and then you start seeing a movie and you're like oh it looks like this scene in the trailer is about to happen or right. the movie wants you to think someone's dead and you're like oh but in the trailer this scene has happened yet, and they were in that scene i've always hated stuff like that Oh, uh, let me see. Uh, Paracord Princess, good to see you. Thanks so much for hanging out. It says, take only pictures, leave only footprints. Yep. Kill only time. Absolutely. Um, I got to get back outdoors again. I really do. There, there's some, you know what? This is funny because in, in here in Oklahoma, there is a national park. There's a, there's a national park like down in the, in the Southeast corner of the state where apparently there's a lot of Bigfoot sightings. Now, I don't believe that Bigfoot is a thing. I think it's a bunch of guy, a bunch of like, you know, people running around in the woods, you know, hoping to see a big furry man. But uh, I don't. (laughs) 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 Totally the mental image there. But um, I need to get back. I really do. I need to get back out and do some outdoor stuff because it's been too long. I've I've been in this office for too long. I need to get out and do some stuff. So looking forward to that. Lovely Dark and Deep is scheduled for release. Uh, February 22nd. So here in a couple of weeks, it's going to be I don't know, maybe a week. Yeah, here in, a, here in a week, a little over a week. It's going to be released here in the U.S. Um, so really, really looking forward to that. And uh, so far, the critic review, the critics reviews um, are pretty positive. So looking forward to a nice atmospheric cosmic horror, you know, from from XYZ Films. Paracord Princess, my wife, hate my wife. My wife is an Oklahoma native. Okay, Angela's an Oklahoma native. She fucking hates that song. She hates it with a passion. <laughs> she can't stand it. And then people hear, oh, you're from Oklahoma? Whoa, Oklahoma. And she just like, no, she'll walk away. So it's hilarious because she can't stand it. Um, Casey Cooper says, I predict if jail goes there, there will be immediate Bigfoot sightings. <laughs> I'm a little Bigfoot. I'm not a big Bigfoot. I'm a little Bigfoot, you know? I'll be like, yo. Ooh, I'll be a, a baby Bigfoot. That's what I'll be. I'll be a baby Bigfoot. <laughs> <laughs> oh, fantastic. Oh, let me see. What so Josh Lee did it say? Oh, Josh Lee says, did it say when it releases? Yep. Uh February 22nd. So looking forward to that. That's gonna that's gonna be a good one. I'm I'm gonna pick that one. I definitely I'm definitely gonna check that out. Definitely. All right. Well, we have got some horror movies to talk about. Why, yes, we do. Yes, we do. Well, yes, we do. <laughs> I'm sorry, that was the. the sorry, that, that's that's the that's the accent for next month. That's the accent for St. Patty's. So, uh, uh, oh, that Jeff. Yeah, that's that is a shame. Left-handed Jedi. I said Julian Sands passed away. Why? He was an avid mountaineer and hiker, and it was a shame that uh, that you know he uh, whatever happened out there in the uh, in the you know in the mountains where he was uh, where he was trekking. So, but yeah, our hearts went out to Julian Sands. I'm glad that they, I'm glad that they were able to find him, that they did find him in so they can give the family closure. That was a good thing that they were able to locate him and determine, you know, it was like, and, and, you know, and give him that, give him that final resting spot. So, but uh, the man loved nature. You got to give him that. He loved being outside and he loved the, he loved the outdoors and he always spent time in it. So that was a shame. 
definitely. But yeah, but not getting us down. Johnny, oh, sorry, Johnny. I have Johnny in the script. Eugene, tell them what we got up first. All right. I mean, they know, they know because of the thumbnail, but. <laughs> what we got first, a film that shouldn't have been made. Texas Chainsaw <laughs> Massacre <laughs> released February 18th, 2022. Roll it. That is Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2022, directed by David Blue Garcia, a story by Fetty Alvarez and Rudo Sangis, and starring Sarah Yelkin. Elise Fisher, Mark Burnham, Mo Dunford, Neil Hudson, Jessica Allen, uh, Owen Fiora, if I pronounce that one right, Jacob Lattimore, and Alice Kriege. 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 And basically, you have a couple of social media influencers. You have a couple of young kids that go and buy a town in terms of renovating the town. And the town comes with Leatherface. <laughs> Yay! It comes with a surprise Yay! gift. Yeah. Bonus gift. Um, <laughs> I, I will tell you right now, in terms of in terms of this movie, they basically saw the 2018 Halloween movie. And was like, that's a good movie. We're going to copy that. And then we're going to copy and then make it worse. Because <laughs> I, I will tell you, every aspect of this film is some kind of rip from the 2018 Halloween. And things like, um, you know, for example, where all of a sudden you have Sally comes back. No one asked for that. <laughs> no one. And it's one thing with it's one thing with Halloween where you have um with uh Jamie Lee Curtis who has a actual relation to Michael Myers. Not to mention Jamie Lee Curtis is still alive, so she can come back and portray um her character. Right. Yeah, unfortunately, yeah, unfortunately Marilyn Burns passed away uh back in 2014. So Becky. she yeah. So there there was no so they ended up okay, well, we're gonna have Sally come back, played by somebody else, understandably, but it was something no one I never asked for a Sally versus uh Sally versus Leatherface. I never have. Plus on top of it, like with uh Lori Strode, after everything that happened, you can picture her kind of okay, she's gearing up. I know Michael Myers, I know he's gonna come back. And it's this really cool premise. I never got that from Sally. Sally came across as somebody who was like happy to be alive. She survived the events and like left the country. I would say either left the country entirely or like, or I mean, at the end of the film, like, you know, lived the rest of her life in a mental asylum because she was, you know, broken, just like, you know, spent out the rest of her days in an asylum somewhere. You know, the, the, the I, I did, I, I see all the, uh, the connect, the connections to the 2018 Halloween that you're, that you're speaking of. I did not, I honestly, at first I was kind of like, holy shit, they brought Sally back. And then I was like, oh, wait, wait, oh shit, they brought Sally back because they're trying to, trying to rip off of that. The, my problem was, is that obviously it's the writing. The writing is the biggest issue on this one. Now, I, first and foremost, they make a real major point of, of stating that it's 50 years after the original massacre back in 1974. 50 years have passed. 
Okay. Now we get a sense in the original 1974 film that Leatherface was at minimum in his mid twenties. He, that would make him like 25, you know, his mid twenties, like 25, maybe 24. If you want to go this, but I would say mid twenties, 50 years later would put him at 75 or 74 years old. And this cat is like, is, is like fucking unstoppable. That, no. No, no, no. There is no supernatural element to Leatherface. There might be to Michael Myers, but there is not to, that was the whole point. You know, so the 75-year-old man, you know, you know like this is just, it's ridiculous. <laughs> so that one, that was like the first giant misstep. And, but all, and I get that they did it because they really, really wanted Whoever wrote this, whether it was, you know, like I know that was Fady Alvarez was, you know, Fady Alvarez and Roto was behind this, but I think there was other input because there seemed to be a really major, a really huge desire for let for like let's see millenn let's see idiot millennials, idiot TikTok millennials get chained, you know, you know, fucked up by a chainsaw. That's pretty much what it was. The whole film is a fucking setup for the bus scene. Yep. The whole film is that everything that happens in this movie is a setup for that bus scene, which is why it's a like like uh, somebody pointed out there um, that it was a yeah. Jinju says the OG of this this was a slow burn. This was a slow smolder. It absolutely was a slow smolder. It kind of like peters along like like it's running out of gas. Then we get the bus scene, which. I objectively is hilarious because it's kind of like, ha ah, you're canceled, bro. And there's like, Oh, he doesn't care. Fuck. And then they all die. That's hilarious because it's just dumb. And, but then it peters out again into like this hackneyed fight. Sally gets croaked and I'm not going to say how that goes down, but, and then this final ending, that's kind of like, what, why? Yep. And then, and then I don't know why, but it pissed me off. The electric car, like the drive like the like the self-driving car driving off she's like oh like she can't control the situation i'm like what the fuck are these wrong the dumbest people with the dumbest premise that like in a dumb dumb version of one of the legendary killers one of the legendary slashers out there uh it's just the only thing i liked the only thing i liked was the casting of alice krieger because I am a I'm a massive Alice Krieger fan. I I loved her. I've loved her and everything's just and I like the role she played in this. She's effective. She's always been a strong actor. She sells the kind of like, you know, the the setup there. I love I love how much she throws herself into a role. That's the only good thing about this movie is they cast Alice Krieger. Too bad, too bad the movie itself is shit. You know, because no fucking way. No. No. That's just no. It's because you did. You brought up a good point. It's like, well, if he's seventy-five years old and he's willing to chainsaw, he's able to throw people up in the air against the ceiling of the bus. Like, I, I don't care how big you are, you do, you're, you don't have the strength to do that anymore. Um, when me and where me and Johnny went to Frightmare and we saw Kane Hodder, mm -hmm. big guy, yes, like big guy. Now Arms like his, fucking melons. <laughs> like, but he's now in his 70s. And it's not he's not as intimidating as he was back in the 80s. It's just it's just the way things happen. It's like he's not nearly as scary as he was 40 years ago. Well, he he doesn't have I would say be just by virtue of age, he just doesn't have the size anymore. You know, yeah, it's, I, hard that's to, a, it's hard to maintain that, but he still has that fucking glare, man. 
Oh, he's he's, still, uh, he's awesome. He's gla- not, he, gla- he glares like a motherfucker. He's kind of like I'm not, oh, shit. <laughs> I'm not knocking Kane Hodder by any means. I, I love Kane Hodder, and he was um he was awesome. But I'm just saying, just to the facts of aging, and basically, I got the worst version of Leatherface. I hated the mask design. I can I couldn't stand it either. I, I couldn't stand it. The cinematography. The, ma- the mask is supposed to give is supposed to give personality. Whatever he's wearing is what dictates his identity, and who and you know the, either that either the the production design like the design of it was absolutely terrible, and so we didn't actually get to see anything in it, and then you we didn't actually get to see anything, so there's no detail to it that actually provide us any kind of information about Leatherface's mindset because that's the face that he wears is how we know what he's internalizing. Okay, that's the important thing is how he focuses this, this stuff. But Mark Burnham, honestly, to be perfectly honest, I would not have cast Mark Burnham as Leatherface. I personally wouldn't have done that. I like Mark Burnham. I like it. He's a he's a very talented actor. I wouldn't have cast him as Leatherface. I think I think that was just a miscast. You know, I maybe there was nobody else. I would have cast like Ken Kersinger or someone else like that, at least to give it a little bit more, you know, a little bit, I guess a little bit more authenticity as far as the size and the imposing nature of this entity goes, of this, of this individual. But I don't. Also, Ken Kersinger, for all the foibles when he was when he was playing Jason, is far better and more um, more experienced in utilizing his body like Kane Hodder to utilize it in, in in physically emoting. Okay, he's just more talented at it. He already has more experience. Kane is the best. Kane is the best because he's the one that gave Jason his voice. But Mark Burnham, I don't think has the. Maybe it was a lack. Maybe it was a lack of money. I don't know. But I, w- I definitely wouldn't have gone I, that direction. Honestly, if it's just bad direction all the way around. Right. I just, just hands down, I, I honestly believe it was built off of that bus scene, which of course they spoil it in the trailer. Um, it was built for that one moment and it just felt, it felt dumb. Yeah. Well, I, mean, I it just, even, we don't give a shit. We, felt stupid. we don't give a shit about any of them. Like Nobody. we do, like everybody, like all the characters in this are so fucking vapid that the only person we could even remotely care about is Sally, and the way she and the way that that and the way that character is written is just lazy. You know, if you're if, if she literally says, "I'm expecting," I, I've been waiting for this moment to see this guy again to encounter. I, I've known we were on a collision course. Then why didn't you prep like fucking Laurie Strode prepped? Okay. No, I understand. Like, like they wrote it in. She became a Texas Ranger, so she's you know she trained with firearms. She knows all that stuff. But then you just grab a bag and you're like, "Let's go to town." No, fuck no. Have a plan. You know, don't yeah, just go meet just, the fucker in the street. <laughs> yeah, have some kind of plan. Like Lori Strode had traps set up in. I don't know what's happening with my camera right now, but um. But she had traps set up and like, okay, my goal, my plan was to lure him into the basement right. and then lock him in the basement, set the house on fire to make sure that, and like, she she spent time doing that. Sally was like, oh, this day might come. Let me grab a, a gun or two. That's, that's a, let me grab a bag. That's about it. Um, It, it was just... And the only reason, when you mentioned in terms of caring about characters, the only reason we care about Sally is because the first Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Right. If this was just a complete brand new character, I wouldn't even care about her. I wouldn't give a shit. Everybody's written so vapidly, 
and just so self-centered that there's no reason to root for everybody. Even the like the forced melodrama between the sisters does is not enough to try and solidify us with any one of the characters. We get one who's being petulant, one who's being who's being short-sighted and closed-minded. So they just bounce off one another. I almost I, the only character that I that I sympathize with was the mechanic dude who is like thinking the same. I know that character is thinking the same things that I'm thinking watching this movie. Who the fuck are these idiot fucking kids? This is some dumb <laughs> ass shit. What the fucking shit? I will. That's all I can say. Like these, like oh, rebel, they, they, when they see the rebel flag, like oh, and they have these these cut from the these, these cut from social media opinions. You know, I get having an opinion, but they, these these characters were deliberately written to be shallow. To be, they're they're written to be fodder. That's all they are. They're just. You know, they're just fodder for Le- for Leatherface. And w- who are we identifying with? Who are we connecting with? Whose struggle is important here? Nothing. It's literally just a conveyor belt of idiots uh, that, that apparently Fede Alvarez and you know his co-writer don't like, and they're just feeding it into Leatherface's chainsaw. That's it. Yeah, that's it. They basically looked at the political climate that's going yeah. on, and we're just here. Let's show a bunch of them get killed because it'll be really funny. And right. they didn't. And the thing is, they didn't even lean into it in a way that could have been funny, like something like The Hunt, where it's like a, oh, okay, they're showing you it's like, oh, the extremist of uh, the extremist of like the right side. This is what they can go. And at least it was like, okay, that movie was fun. It can have a point and. You can kind of you actually care about some of the characters, right? And uh, Emma Roberts, Emma Roberts gets smoked so quickly. I love that she got smoked so early. Awesome. It was like I was like, oh, please kill that. I, I, I'm sorry, Emma. I do. I, I know she, she, she's got talent. She plays bitches really, really well. Anytime she tries to go dramatic, it's not great. So I was like, oh, Emma Roberts in this. Fuck, she's so annoying when she's not a bad guy. When she's not deliberately being a bad guy, she's so annoying. And I was like, please smoke that bitch early. Bam! <laughs> You're like, I was like, man, yes. I can't believe she's in this. Oh, never. She is not in this movie. She is bro. not in this movie. <laughs> that was fucking hilarious. I love that fucking Hillary Swank was the end of that. But it's just like, uh, it's, it's awesome. I do have to say that I do want to point out, uh, someone said, Aaron Reese said, Week in Horror, Texas Chainsaw Massacre 8. And I'm going to change it. Leather Space. <laughs> that would be fucking hilarious oh man but yeah and i also want to uh i want to give a shout out to nana good to see you bud thanks for hanging out in the chat with us who gifted 10 memberships to the army of the dead thank you so much nana you rock dude so welcome welcome angel rivera sherry tilly wrote it no less name sally skellington dan shire the bat janine borgia and peter harrington and miss ellie uh, Miss Ellie to the Army of the Dead. Please enjoy those emojis we've made for you and your new channel badge. Thank you very much for that, NA, NA. Very generous of you. You rock. Sarcasm says, Leatherface was the protagonist, taking out stupidity wherever it reared its ugly head. Yes! And it's a fucking, it's technically a home invasion thing because they they go in and they take over his fucking home and they're going to kick him out. And he's like, I protect, you know, I protect home. And then even the old lady's like, no, you got to leave. Y'all gonna die. She, she's basically the crazy, you know, Alice Krieger got to play the crazy Ralph in this movie. And so then she's like, then she dies. So technically, they they inadvertently killed his caretaker and then tried to displace him. 
And this fucker fought gentrification like nobody's goddamn business. <laughs> 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 it's like, gentrify this motherfucker. <laughs> I will say it was kind of satisfying at the very, very end when he like grabs her in the car. And, you know, I don't want to spoil that moment, but he's like, ah, it's like, that was pretty. I was like, okay, cool. Yeah. Well, at least, at least you get one of them, you know? And <laughs> see, I thought that was so ridiculous. And I, I, it was telegraphed from the get go. Oh, yeah. Like they're yeah. getting in the car and you're taking us, like, man, this is lingering too long on the up. Uh, that one's going to get smoked right now. Well, ah! And then, you know, gets decapitated. Yeah, her as a car. Because I can't control the car. The car drives itself. It's like. <laughs> Honestly, the way the movie should have ended, you could have smoked the first girl off, and she's just second one. She's like, I can't control the car, and then it hits a building, the car blows up or something. That like would that. be fucking. That would <laughs> be hilarious. <laughs> Left-handed Jedi says, "Stand your ground with a chainsaw." I like it. I do like it. It's. It, I mean, obviously, there's there's a lot of things that connect to what's going on in you know in the I would say in the social media sphere in the political spectrum. There's a lot of, it, it, basically, it's kind of like a salad bar of just hot button topics at the time. And then each individual of the teenager, each of the teenagers that are the young adults that are in there, what, it, the social media people, every single one of them kind of represents one major hot button topic so that they can have all this generated drama between all of them. It's, it's fucking, it's, it's so formulaic. It's so ridiculous. And yes, Eugene's right. It telegraphs it, you know, telegraphs it across the board, like what's happening in this movie. I, you know, I don't, I, I'm, I, I get the fail. You know, correct me. I might be wrong. Correct me if I, I, I mean, you can correct me if I'm wrong. If we find out of this, what this movie really felt like given the money that went into it, because the location they shot was, I, I will say this. I really enjoyed the look, like the look of the uh, the environment, the, like the environments of the, of the place. A lot of work went into setting up the the kind of like the kill arena, the little town, the house. I I like environments that are really well designed, that are that have a lot of detail to them. And this decaying ancient town that is like you know the time forgot, you know, and it's weather beaten and rustic, and you know people are just barely hanging on. They don't like outsiders. I love setups like that. I love the 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 place that they're shooting in was great. Now uh, I don't know I don't I don't know specifically where they shot that or if they constructed that whole thing out in the middle of nowhere. But uh, I love that this I love the look of it. Just like it just you know set design and art direction were were on point with this film. So I will give it that. Um, it looks really pretty, but sadly it is just no fucking substance. Well, see, so. so you get this nice. Oh, oh. Ten- that's where I was going. Oh yeah, go ahead, finish thought, and I remember mine. So go ahead and finish yours. So you get this, you get this nice abandoned town that feels complete. The problem is, I was going to compare this in terms of uh, Halloween 2018. Is Halloween 2018 the cinematography in that movie's immaculate? Oh yeah, the cinematography in this looks like shit. <laughs> it's there's it's some inter- not- there's some very interesting color choices. You know, in in how in the palette that they used, which I found really fascinating. So they didn't just like sepia everything to be dusty old town. You know, like when you see when you shoot in Mexico, when, you, when you're trying to convey Mexico and you just shoot everything in sepia. So oh, yeah, you know, I, they didn't do something. They didn't do anything like that, or they they didn't do like you know hard like hard color palettes like you know like steel or blue, you know, or yellow. It's like. And I, I just like that it, it had this it had a very natural feel to it, which I really dug. It's completely fabricated, but 
I like that it had that natural feel. It kind of conveyed it to me, uh, conveyed it well. It kind of captured what the Michael Bay, uh, the Michael Bay, the 2003 film did. I thought that captured it really, really well. And uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, the beginning with, um, with uh, what was it, uh, the beginning? Uh, the, one with, the one with Jordana Brewster? Yeah, yeah, yeah she, she dies at the end, yeah. Right, yeah. So I, it captured those kind of elements, I thought, kind of well. I thought that it, they they did their best on that one. So, but other than that, the big thing I, was like the feeling that I got on this that this movie was made specifically to maintain the rights. Oh yeah, I can definitely see something like that. Right. Um. The something. Finish, just, some, yeah. Oh, it's something that felt quick. There was something um, like the cinematography of Halloween, it just put it that much better because a lot of times in, especially slasher films, cinematography is one of the sec- second-rated things. Right. Uh, as long as you see the action, as long as it's kind of halfway decent, who cares? And that movie went to the next level. It's like, no, we can shoot a beautiful-looking movie and still have everything going on. For example, like the shot, the wonder of uh, Michael going through the house and slits the, I think slits the girl's throat. Stuff like that, like, it was like, oh, that is intricate, that is interesting, that is something that I was not expecting. And in this film, it was like, the lighting was bland, mm-hmm. basic. You had a budget. They're going to shoot on higher-end cameras, so it's not going to look like Acula, for, for example. But it was nothing that was stunning or nothing that stand, stood out. There was nothing. Even the bus where they try to stylize it a little bit with a kind of right. blue lighting and they could have, they could have done more and just did. Right. Yeah. So sarcasm says we, uh, we can at weekend horror. Did you just compliment Michael Bay for shame? No, I didn't compliment Michael Bay. I, cause Michael Bay produced that film. I complimented the Michael, the Michael Bay produced film where the other people in charge of that stuff really did a good job. <laughs> That's what I complimented. <laughs> Listen, Michael Bay knows how to make money. He does. It's all about mother because <laughs> it's all about motherfucking money. That's what it's about. Uh, Aaron Reese says we are filmed on sets built in and around Sofia, Bulgaria. We're oh, they shot it in Bulgaria. Well, hey, man, that's I probably yes. Cheap, 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 cheap. That's where that's what it's about. And uh, good to see you, Skits Crasher. Says good evening. Thanks so much for being here, Skits Crasher. And I saw Extra J as well. Good to see you, Extra J. Thanks for hanging out tonight. We do appreciate. It. And wrote it Noah's name, Gabba Gabba, to you, bud. Thanks so much for being here. Uh, make sure I didn't miss anybody. I don't think I did. And uh, Joshua Lee has a question for you, bud. Joshua Lee says, "So wait, Eugene, what are you saying in terms of shit getting real in regards to this movie?" So, it will still get the moniker of shit gets real because of the bus scene. Which shit definitely got real in the bus. It got got real (laughs) in the bus. The bus massacre could have been better because there was some use of, like, CGI. And I'm a practical person. Give me the practical effect. I want to see the special effects team build intestines, build arms and legs and all the imperfections of using that kind of stuff versus moments where it's like, oh, CG cut in half, CG arms, CG legs, CG kind of thing. So it gets it because it does have the massacre and it's still a little fun to watch. But it get, it will, it's like the bare minimum, like shit gets real. Versus <laughs> shit gets real. real. <laughs> <laughs> oh, thank you very much, Sir Kevin. Says fair enough, Jail. I forgive you. Thank you very much, but I appreciate that. 
Uh, man. Oh, so yeah. It, it, Aaron says it was still more comfortable than a Greyhound bus ride. Good point. Excellent point there. Amen to that. <laughs> but yeah, uh, for what makes Texas Chainsaw Massacre that franchise, for what makes that franchise, all of that was missing. Every that that was my that was my final kind of takeaway that that it, this was a fast and that's why I got the sense I got the sense that this film was made specifically so that uh, whoever has the rights can keep the rights. Think of it along the lines of like the Fast and Dirty Fantastic Four film that released that was absolute fucking garbage. The reason for that is because they they pumped that out quick because they wanted to maintain the rights for it. That's pretty much it. Well, so I mean, you do what you, you do what you have to do, and because everything that makes Texas Chainsaw Massacre, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, TCM two, TCM three, you know the thing, the the things that make those movies fantastic, which is even though they kind of slid into a Herschel Gordon Lewis kind of field from you know Toby Toby Hooper's original Nightmare, they kind of slid into the uh, the Gordon Lewis kind of area. Despite that fact, there are certain elements that that kind of movie requires that the 2003 film captured very effectively and it looked gorgeous. So that's why the 2003 film looking back is, is really fucking good. That's why uh Texas Chainsaw Massacre, the beginning was good, but the one with Alexandra Daddario, she was the only good thing about that, you know, for a number of reasons. Um, <laughs> let me just, I'll just say that, but, uh, but this particular one, Oh, when I, she was like, get him cuz. Oh, my, oh, you had to remind me of that shit, dude. I'm talking to... No. No, but it's still... it's Come on, it's Alexander Daddario, man. She's very talented. She is extra, extraordinarily talented. I love her on Mayfair Witches. I really do. I thought she was great. Plus, she's fantastic in the little other roles I've seen her play, like in uh, fucking Burying the Ex. I thought she was great. That her, her chemistry with Anton Yelchin was amazing. So, but yeah, absolutely terrible. Everything, everything that you come to expect, everything that is necessary for a Texas Chainsaw Massacre film, none of that is here. The, the leather face that we anticipate is not here. The setup is not here. The, uh, it's just, like I said, it's a quick and dirty, you know, film made. I think, I think to, to keep this, so someone can keep the rights is pretty much what I, what I concluded on this one. So if you dig Leatherface, if you're a hardcore Leatherface fan and you just live and die all things Texas Chainsaw Massacre, didn't see it. It's on Netflix, but uh, I, I, I warn you, you may be disappointed. I'll just say that. You know what? What I would love to see is I would love to see a return back to the art house style, mm. because like this, this current generation has only seen the later Texas Chainsaw massacres. Or like, oh, they can be like over the top, or they're like this or like that. And it's like go back. I want something that has that feeling of the nineteen seventy four art house more uncomfortable like the dinner scene that kind of feel to it you don't quite know what's going on and the brutality in that one was so quick right that i something along those lines where it is doesn't even have to be super gory because the first one isn't that gory right it's not it really is by by especially today's standards. So the gore is not necessarily have to be part of that formula, but that would be an interesting angle to see. Definitely. But all right. I would like to ask the audience, who is your favorite Leatherface actor? Ooh, there's been several. Who has betrayed Leatherface the best? I actually have to go back in. 
Because my so my favorite portrayals of Leatherface is the first one. I like Leatherface in the second one, and I do like the 2003 uh, with Jessica Biel. I thought that right. Leatherface was good. Yeah, Gunnar Hansen. Gunnar Hansen. <clears throat> yeah, Gunnar Hansen. So Andrew Rivera said Gunnar Hansen. Um, Gunnar Hansen. I I honestly I have to give it to. I'm going to give it to uh, Gunnar Hansen, but. I think it was, if I remember correctly, and I want to make sure I cite them right. Um, I want to make sure I cite it correctly. Uh, make sure I get the right actor on that. Um, Andrew Bernarski. Andrew Bernarski, I think, did exceptionally well in the 2003 uh, Text Chainsaw Massacre with Jessica Biel and Eric Balfour and Erica Learson. Um, I think that Andrew Bernarski did fantastic in that. Uh, but Gunnar Hansen tops it a little bit because he number obviously he established the character, but he gave a level of he he went the full spectrum, not only terrifying but also vulnerable, depending upon what face he's wearing. So I like that he went that way. Oh, and Aaron Reese says Gunnar was the only one that got the chainsaw whip right. Nice, very yeah. cool. <laughs> So, yeah, but, yeah, definitely have to go with Gunnar Hansen. But uh, definitely let us know down in the comments below or weekendhorror at gmail.com who your favorite or maybe who you think was the best actor to portray Leatherface. Love to hear what people think about that. All right. So, up next, our next film. Um, unfortunately, we don't have a trailer for. There is no trailer. I even looked for a possible, like, TV spot for this, but there, there wasn't one. So I could not locate a trailer for this film, but that's okay. It released February 20th, 1977, and we have The Spell, as in, like, magic of dispel. Um, one second. I totally fucked up. There it is. We have The Spell. So uh, The Spell was an, uh, a made-for-television horror film, premiered on NBC as their big event movie of the week back in those days. It was uh, written by Brian Taggart, directed by Lee Phillips, starring... Uh, the legendary Lee Grant, uh, Susan Myers, Leela Goldoni. I'm oh, sorry, yeah, the legend, yeah, legendary Lee Grant, Susan Myers, Leela Goldoni, Helen Hunt, Helen Hunt, and I think what is her first film role, uh, Jack Colvin and James Olsen. The film follows a uh, a young girl who, no uh, <laughs> man, shout out to Ducktales. Yep, a film. The film follows a young girl, Rita who is uh, overweight, shy, 15 years old, and is, you know, being mercilessly bullied at school and uh, begins to develop, uh, as her anger grows, begins to apparently develop what looks like telekinetic abilities, which she uses to take revenge, which are being used to take revenge on the people that have offended her or, you know, you know, belittled her. And it eventually culminates in a showdown at the end of the movie between, I'm just, it's 1977, so it culminates in a showdown um, uh, between her mother and her as uh, she tries, you know, they try to uh, stop the carnage. Um, man, oh man, if ever there was, okay, I, I first got to say this. I got to say that the spell, before we dive into, you know, the, uh, Joshua Lee, before we dive into the obvious there, first and foremost, this story is not one that I think that is not one that can be portrayed effectively on television. I don't. I think in my person, I think in my opinion, um, Brian Taggart, writer, uh, screenwriter Brian Taggart, he wrote the movie. And it was not originally intended to go to television. So 
Taggart says that he wrote it at the same time that King was writing Carrie. Okay. Then King published Carrie. Then King got Carrie published, his first big publish. You know, and then Brian, and then and it was like it was like a very fast turnaround. I think it was like less than two years. The 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 book got optioned. Brian De Palma attached. Bam, we have we have the movie Carrie with Sissy Spacek. Uh, Taggart didn't have that much success. Taggart wrote it, intending for it to be a film, and then the process to get it made was slow. And then, unfortunately, before it was able to be made, Carrie came out. And all of a sudden, Carrie was huge. Well, then they saw, oh, okay, so it's popular. So that you now we can really release it. So then all of a sudden, the, the wheels on Taggart's project began to ramp up. But they didn't want to release to theaters because, A, it's going to be, you know, Carrie's already out. So let's release it on television. So Taggart had to kind of pare things down for TV, for the made-for-TV. And that really sapped, and you know, from what I saw, really sapped the life out of this project, out out of, out of this project. Now, that's I I, do, I just don't think it belonged on television. This should have been a theatrical release, but unfortunately, to go by what Taggart says, Carrie beat him to the punch, and I it's weird. He says that King was writing Carrie at the same time he was writing that that he was writing uh, the spell. Okay, even it's weird because there's no magic in this movie. Which is kind of strange, yeah. But but there are so, uh, I, we can't ignore how many overlaps are in this movie compared to Carrie. Oh, I'm absolutely, and unfortunately, it comes down to who is first. We've talked about that before, where you have the burning versus um, Friday, Friday the Thirteenth. Yeah. Um, uh, even look at like. The telephone. Alexander Graham Bell gets credit for inventing the telephone, but it actually was like six people that all mailed in patents for the telephone. His was just the first one that got opened. <laughs> so, and unfortunately, something like that happens is you have two people, no contact with each other, not bouncing ideas back and forth. They're just writing their way. One person gets it first. They get all the credit for it. And then it gets to the point where it, then if you try to do yours, regardless of it, say it's done, then you're known as a ripoff, a maca, or everybody's going to always compare you to Carrie. And people like, like to lean towards the originals better. Right. It's just something, unless, if, if you are second, unless yours is so much better than the first one, the first one's just going to beat out. And even a couple, even a couple moments, like I'm sitting there watching it, and one of the things is like, oh, well, they like ridicule her of her weight. If the ideal weight is, let's say, for a girl her age is, say, 120 pounds, she may be 125 pounds. Like, <laughs> I, like I didn't get that, like, at all. It's you're not you're not getting somebody who's you're coming in who's like 200 pounds. And it's like, oh, man, OK, this is all or even somebody just kind of thick looking. No, I mean, it's like. You can't really tell the difference between the two, and especially especially at fifteen years old, it's kind of like maybe she's going to grow into it. I have no idea, but the the girl wasn't that big. She wasn't. Although she, they did cast her aside from from Helen Hunt, and Helen Hunt at that age, she's I think Helen was kind of like I think she might have been like uh, thirteen or fourteen time, but uh, but Helen was like desperately skinny. So it's kind of like that's the that's the the, the show is like. 
if you if you saw Rita on her own, she looked completely normal. It was a fifteen year old girl, and then you see her next to Helen as her sister. It's like, oh yeah, she is carrying a bit more weight than her sister, but her sister is kind of like you know rail thin. I just, I'm just you throw it yeah, they, they, they do things like dress her up right. in kind of like baggy clothes and try to. Right. It's, it's almost like they kind of have to kind of hide her figure. So that, and they, they make reference to it like a lot too. It's not like it's just a one-time thing where it's like, a, oh, okay, well, she's fat. And like, no one ever jokes about it again. They like ridicule her a lot because of it. And it just kind of like, eh. Right. It's okay. The, the, the kicker on this one is that the, despite the fact that, you know, it, it, it if you've seen any kind of TV movie, you know how TV movies are shot. You know, especially in 19, the late 70s, you know what kind of cameras that they that they typically used. You have that kind of like aspect ratio that's perfect for television. That's what they were shooting with. The the big problem with this one and the reason the, the reason the spell doesn't work is because of the writing. And it's because they had to make it for television. So obviously it was shifted up a little bit. Um, there's a lot of elements that you're going to recognize from Carrie in there. Obviously, the girl, her getting ridiculed, uh, her getting ridiculed at school by by all the other girls. The uh, the reference to, to her being on her period. The issue with uh, like the even down to the final sequence when she like telekinetically throws the knives at her mother is exactly how you know Carrie ended when Carrie kills uh, Miss White. Carrie kills uh, uh, Miss White at the very end of that film. So. The difference is that this ends on an up note where the mother and the daughter, the mother apparently also has powers. Like, ah, oh, I have powers too, but I've been hiding them. Ha ha. And it's really, it's it's so funkily written in order to try and push this thing through. The problem is, the biggest issue is, is that, is the protagonist. When writing, and this is, I don't know why Taggart had a problem with this because I've seen other work that Taggart has, has written and I didn't, I couldn't have foreseen an issue like this. The, the protagonist is obviously the most important character of this. The reason Carrie White works so well is because, one, she's suffering ridicule at school, which every single one of us can identify with. Every one of us at a certain point has felt like an outsider and has been ridiculed for being an outsider. That is what makes Carrie White sympathetic. That is why even when she burns down the school, you know, as in retaliation for what they did with the pig's blood, when she nails her, when she crucifies her mother to the wall with the knives, when she does the things that she does, when she kills John Travolta, bam, in the car, when she does all this, she is sympathetic from point A to point B. From the beginning of the movie to the end of the movie, we have sympathy for Carrie White. And the reason for that is because we understand her, okay? We get it. Carrie is a good girl who has this power that she can't control and that is heightened by her emotions, okay? There's a lot of allegories there. You see a lot of those in comic books as well. That's why it, that's why we identify so well with that's what makes Carrie such a fantastic character. The character of Rita does not do any of this. Rita is obnoxious. Rita is entitled because she has a very very wealthy family. If you know if you notice Carrie, Carrie came from a very poor family. Her mother was a fundamentalist evangelical nut job who just spent nothing uh, spent all their money on fucking bibles and crucifixes, okay? Because, you know, Piper Laurie fucking just killed it in that role. It's just amazing. But we have an entitled disrespectful, you know, snotty little shit who has all of this money, you know, and is mad because people, viewers, you know, or whatever. And then every, even her sister, even her sister attacks her as fat and like this. And then she develops this power. Or she's given this power. Technically, it's the gym teacher. The gym teacher, like, took, uh, the gym teacher took um, pity on her and taught her how to, you know, basically made her into a psychic, like taught her how to use psychic powers. And so it may be in, in exacting revenge against people. And then, you know, it's, it's, it's fucking, it's just, 
we don't give a shit about Rita at any point. The girl is, the, the character is not written in a way to make her, she technically is the fucking villain. And the problem is that the mom is kind of like the, is, is almost like the, the balancing act between the father and the daughter because the father's an asshole. The daughter's a dick. Her sister is a douche. Helen Hunt plays a, a pretty effective douche at that age. And then the mom is kind of like, oh, I'm trying to balance everything and make sure everybody's happy. And there's no protagonist here to root for. You know, and so the ending where the mother overpowers the daughter, you know, and like it's just like, oh, and then hugs her. It's okay. It's all over. What did she run out of psychic juice? She, she, she still <laughs> has fuel. She still has power. You know, you just happen to beat her because you're older and you know more or you're more power. Doesn't matter. You haven't solved shit. You know, the problem still exists. And then that's where the fucking movie ends. It's like, really? You have a psychic fight. You wreck the kitchen. No one really gets fucking hurt. And then she cries. Then you hug her. And she's like, oh, I'm so sad. It's like, it's okay. I'm here. It's. I wanted to enjoy the movie. You know, I wanted to enjoy it. But fuck. Son of a bitch. The, the protagonist is so important. If we cannot connect with your lead actor. What the fuck are we doing here? You well, know? See, what I'm curious is. The fact that Carrie came out first, I wonder how many ideas he had that he felt like he couldn't use anymore. That's, a, that's like, an interesting question. Because maybe he was like, all right, now I have the protagonist originally come from a wealthy family and she gets bullied by her parents and schools and all this other kind of stuff. And then it was like, oh, well, now I have to bully it come up with a bully in a different way or I have to change the characters as this because it's a very fine line between you're creating something because he ventures a little too far into Carrie's territory. That's a lawsuit that's waiting to happen. Right, yeah. So it might have been almost, like maybe the best options were taken away from him and kind of this is what he felt like was left. See, that sucks. You got to wonder what kind of influence the studio, uh, like what NBC had on that in the writing process. Kind of like we need to kind of like, you know, tone this. We need to tone this down. Obviously, the worst mistake possibly made was the fucking music choices. Like it's it's so fucking weird. It's such it's such a it creates such cognitive dissonance when the what's going on in the screen. It matches in uh, is is in no way matched by the tension building or by the by the scoring that they use. The scoring in this film was fucking atrocious. It was absolutely the worst you know, up there, it's kind of like that kind of energy is not what you want to convey when the actors are doing what they're doing in on, like on the screen. It's fucking ridiculous. Brian De Palma brilliantly matched min, like, like a minimalist score in Carrie because we're supposed to be with Carrie who is essentially alone. She has nothing to reference, which is why when she lashes out, it's so extreme and people get hurt so badly because Carrie is traumatized. She's damaged, like damn near beyond repair by her mother, by her peers. She has one friend and that friend's hands are tied, you know, and she really can't do shit. So because who could possibly understand a girl with a, a girl with burgeoning psychic powers? So when it comes down to it, we understand everything about Carrie, why she lasts out and why it's so extreme. This is just, you know, oh, I'm a petulant child and I now I have the power to throw shit around the room. Nah, you know, whatever. I, 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 I couldn't care. I couldn't care about shit. And it fucking just, you know, ended 
just it ended terribly. The scoring was awful. I mean, classic 70s shooting. You have the camera, you know, the technology. It was, you know, it was what you expect. It was like, you know, watching, you know, Kolchak the Night Stalker, that same kind of like, you know, grain stuff. But yeah. fucking hell, man. Oh, it's, it's made like, for TV movie. I mean, that's just. Yeah, it's that, made for TV. Yeah. But there have yeah. been some good ones, you know? The, like, you know, uh, uh, the one, uh, the vampire one that, that we saw. You know, there have been some decent ones that know how, where the director knows how to utilize light and shadow in order to convey tension, knows how to score this motherfucker so that we actually maintain the energy through scenes so that we can actually identify with the characters that, that we have going on. None of that is here. None of it. It's all, I mean, it's like, it's the, it, it, if it is a carry rip, if it is a carry rip, it's the worst fucking possible rip you could make. Because oh, all also- of the elements, yeah. On top of that, he's going against Brian De Palma. Yeah, I mean that's, that's pretty bad. Directors. <laughs> <laughs> you got fucking like like Lee Phillips going up, like Lee Phillips, who's you know, you know, was you know, it had kind of a career, but you know, nothing really huge stands out. You know, mostly his television, it was television director, Dick Van Dyke show, Peyton Place, Fugitive, Twilight Zone. Um, so a good sense of it, like how to shoot for television. But come on, man, De Palma, there's no fucking way. Yeah, no they're way. not they're not in the same league they're, they're just not i mean and brian de palma goes on to bigger films and all kinds of stuff you knew uh, you knew it was gonna be bad when the when the when the uh the spontaneous combustion scene you know had to be essentially it was basically uh a person like you know where the camera catches the weird angle and the person like freaking out like it was it was very peter jackson-esque kind of like oh like in the screen when the person is spontaneously combusting and then there's like smoke you know it was like okay but there's no fire so it's really, really bad when you have to convey when you have to convey the horror of spontaneous combustion verbally, and you have to basically have it, have one of your characters describe what happened so that the audience can imagine it. Because all we saw was a person go like ah with some with some with some like you know some dark lighting ah and then smoke and then they and then they run off camera and they die. Can you imagine they did that for the prom scene at Carrie? Oh, <laughs> oh. You have like smoke in front of the lens and just people kind of run around you never see fire <laughs> exactly sir Kevin says that god-awful theme that they replayed 40 times even on the piano at the party yeah agreed yeah and sir Kevin says i disagree carrie 2 was the worst ripoff of carrie <laughs> <laughs> yeah I, I can see that i could yeah absolutely well that okay so that's the question i want to ask the audience i want to know and let us know in the in the here in the live chat or in the comments do you think despite what taggart says do you think that the spell was a carry ripoff agree or disagree the spell is a carry ripoff do you agree or disagree with that statement do you think it was a ripoff or do you think it was just kind of like the creative miasma you know they conjured up the same kind of idea simultaneously and Chuck, I'm oh, sorry, I saw Chuck Norris. Hold the fuck. And Stephen King just got there first. Stephen King got lucky. He got published. They picked it up, and bam, and they were off. They were off to the races. Very similar to Sean S. Cunningham and the Weinstein's. When Cunningham came up with Friday the Thirteenth, they were working on the Burning. Friday the Thirteenth beat him to the punch. The Burning kind of fell to the wayside. Even though it's a cult classic, it is an amazing fucking film. But uh, Friday Thirteenth, you know, made made it there. Let us know down in the comments or at weekendorgmail.com if you think. That the spell was a, if you think or don't think that the spell was a rip, was a straight ripoff of Carrie. What do you think, Bo? Was it a ripoff? Did, did, did Taggart rip it off? 
I honestly, I think it's more of a tragedy where he just got kind of forced into a corner, and they're kind of like, well, you're already so far in, like, he just kind of, he was just stuck. Unfortunately, that happens. Yeah. I, well, I know, okay, okay. It's hard, it, I know it's hard to think that that like you know people can come up with the same idea kind of simultaneously and run with it i we we you know i yeah you know, it's happened to me you know i'm still on the fence as to whether or not my idea made it somewhere else if someone changes you know they they ran with it uh fuck you crawl but <laughs> i i don't so i like it's happened to me i've talked to other directors it's happened to the director of night things was kind of surprised when the show when i when i let him know about the show from he was kind of like Holy shit. Like that that's my premise. And I was like, huh? Because his movie came out 10 years before From did, or maybe eleven years before From did. And I was kind of like, ah, you see? And he was like, oh, that's so fucking weird. So you never know. I but honestly, I have to I kind of have to side with left-handed Jedi here. He says, gut tells me it's a ripoff. My gut says it's a ripoff. There is just way too many similarities. Way too similarities. The only difference, the only big difference is that there is never a male lead that comes in to give Rita the kind of balance and the hope that things can be better because that's the arc. Is like the even though it's all set up, the male lead comes in, gives Carrie hope, and then that hope is built naively, and then the betrayal with the pig's blood is what kick is is the big trigger event. Okay, we have to have our, our character has to go on an arc, but all we see is petulant child, petulant child, petulant child mad because if this woman, if because if her teacher teaches everyone else to be psychic, she'll no longer be special anymore. And then the end, it's just fucking, it's just, it's just weak. It's just weak as shit. Aaron Reese says, the novel came out in 74 and was hugely popular. You wouldn't need a leaked treatment. Exactly. Yep. Exactly. Sarcas says the timing is just too coincidental to not have been at least a leak. Oh yeah, leak treatment. Likely, like he read it, you know. Possibly, I don't know. There's just way too many similarities. Way too I, much overlap. Uh, <laughs> it, it could have been. Well, obviously, we'll never know for sure. It's just right. Cause I know it's happened to me uh, before, where I have come up with like an idea, and then literally someone's been like, "Oh, oh, you mean something like uh, you mean something like Serenity." And I was like, what? Yeah, have you ever heard of the show Firefly? And I was like, no. <laughs> because my idea was a sci-fi uh, sci-fi about a crew that the captain was on the losing side of a war, so now he lives on the outskirts of space taking odd jobs and eventually has to go against the uh, go against the unified, whatever I called it at the time, which ends up leading to like its downfall. And like never, I never didn't see Serenity. Never heard of Firefly. Never anything like that beforehand. And I was writing this thing, and a buddy of mine's like, "Oh yeah, Firefly." And I watched the first five minutes when they're in the battle, and I was like, "Fuck, delete story." Done. Just let us know in the comments below if you believe that Eugene never saw Firefly. 
<laughs> and it was and it was not and that his script was not a, was not a rip was not a, jo- a rip off Joss Whedon's work. Let us know. Let us know in the comments below or we can order gmail.com. <laughs> kind of a bonus question there. I I I know that I I know that it can happen. Come on. And if there, as many people work in this industry as many ideas are thrown around. Aaron Reese says no new ideas, only new interpretations. I agree with that Aaron. Hey, you know, it's just kind of like mine, you know, people trapped in place with alligators during storm, during hurricane. That's essentially what my what my treatment was. That's essentially what my script was. My script was person trapped in place during hurricane with alligator, with giant alligator. Crawl was two people trapped in place during hurricane with lots of alligators, lots of normal sized alligators. That was that, you know, I mean, they changed the look. Plus, my protagonist was was a black woman and their protagonist was was, you know, uh, a white chick. So, and with Barry Pepper in it. So, you know, either way, it happens. You know, sometimes, sometimes, if I ever get the money, I'm going to shoot fucking crawl. I will. Or I'm going to shoot. I fucking called it crawl. What the fuck? <laughs> if I ever get no. the money, I'm going to shoot my movie. I will. If I ever get it, I will shoot that movie because I want to see that movie done. And I want uh, Sonequa Martin Green in that role because I, I, I kind of, I, I saw her in Walking Dead, you know, back when that kicked off, and I saw that and was like, this this woman can do anything, and I want her in that role. I envisioned her in that role. So, you know, that's how long ago I wrote this fucking movie. I wrote that movie. So fucking long. Holy shit. So, but yeah. Uh, Sir Kevin says, I forgot that I saw things when I was stoned. Oh, oh. I for- uh, Sir Kevin says, I, for- I forgot that I saw things when I was stoned too. Don't feel bad about it, Eugene. <laughs> <laughs> And Rodinella's name says Firefly was just the Millennium Falcon with a full crew. Ooh, Joss Whedon did a Star Wars rip. <laughs> hey, you know it worked. <laughs> All right, so uh, let's move on to a, what do we got up next? This is the big one. So we got a weird one. Yes. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. Yo, who directed it? Yeah, <laughs> oh, and by the way, uh, they just jumped in, and I, it's the first time I've seen. Him. Most Chops is here. It says, hello all. Looks like I'm a bit late to find out what's going on in this week of horror. Good to see you, Most Chops. Thanks so much for hanging out. I think it's the first time I've, I've seen you uh, pop into yes. the live chat. So we appreciate seeing new names. Thank you very, very much. So, yeah, but yeah, Thank you for joining it, us. Take it away, Eugene. So next up, we have Lost Highway, which was released February 21st, 1997. Roll it. That is Lost Highway, directed by the esteemed David Lynch, starring Bill Palma, Patricia Arquette, Balthazar Getty, Robert Blake, Natasha Grissom Wagner, Gary Busey, and Robert Luga. Loja. 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 <laughs> yeah, I got close. Rob, Robert Loja. If people remember the Family Guy reference, it was like, it was like so what's your name? Robert Loja. How do you spell that? R, as in Robert Loja. <laughs> I fucking love Robert Loja. There's a funny, there's actually a funny fucking story that I, I kind of, before we dive into this one, uh, before before you get, uh, so, because the description on this movie is really fucking weird, but uh, it's it's really, really entertaining. Apparently, Robert Loja uh, wanted the role of Frank in Blue Velvet. Okay, so... So David Lynch was doing Blue Velvet and Robert Loggia read the script and he wanted the role of Frank. And unfortunately, he lost out to Dennis Hopper. So Dennis Hopper got that role. And apparently, Loggia was so pissed off that Hopper got the role that he launched into a 
a like an insane like profanity laced tirade at David Lynch, like he went off about him get about about Hopper getting that role. That tirade is what informed the road rage scene when uh, Loja like drives the like drives the guy off the road and then rips him <laughs> out of his car, pistol whips the shit out of him, and is like ah. That whole scene was inspired by Loja ripping David Lynch a new asshole for, for giving David uh, Dennis Hopper the role in Blue Velvet, which I think is fucking hilarious because it's so uh, it's just it's so on brand. It was so on brand for Robert Loja. And good to see you, Jefferson Spatchcock. Thanks so much for hanging out with us tonight. Uh, I, I knew you would love uh, Lost Highway. Absolutely. But uh, I'm sorry. I don't mean to interrupt. It's, an, it's a funny little anecdote, a little kind of behind the scenes thing about the relationship. Robert Loja is an intense motherfucker, and, and I could totally see him like, Calling up fucking like you know, David Lynch is kind of like I'm, I'm kind of an artist, man. This guy, what it is Loja calling him up like a fucking mafia boss? You cocksucking motherfucker! <laughs> and I was like, holy shit! And then he cast him in a movie. He's like, dude, what you did to me? Do that again. <laughs> I liked it. <laughs> I loved it. I love the energy. Bring it. <laughs> Actually, if it was, if it was, if it's, if it's David, if it's Lynch, I love the energy. You need to bring more energy just like that. Bring it like you did when you ripped me a new butthole on the phone. <laughs> I think, I think my, let me know if my Lynch impression like sucked balls. Cause I, I feel like it, it wasn't quite there, but go ahead, EG. Sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt. So basically, because that's a little bit of a weird one, um, it follows two storylines, and you have one who is a jazz musician, and he's tortured by the idea of his wife having an affair, and the other one is a mechanic who is dealing with a woman who happens to have a gangster boyfriend. That's kind of the trap. The best way to probably sum it up, because it can, right, it can yeah. definitely, it can definitely go in place. But shit definitely gets real in this one. Okay, so that that's the kicker on this movie. Obviously, the movie is deeply and profoundly uh, surreal. I think it, uh, it, this comes down to oh, and Jefferson Spatchcock brings up Robert Blake isn't so much a bad guy as he is one of Lynch's eyebrowless harbingers of doom. Um, agree on that. I love the fact that. It's also kind of interesting how Robert Blake got that look is that David Lynch gave him carte. You basically gave him a blank. He just said, go like you come up with the style, the style, the like, how he talks, all the stuff. I'm putting it in your hands, Robert Blake. You go and do it. And Robert Blake decided, I know what I'm going to do. So he goes and he shaves his eyebrows off, parts his hair down the center, and then uses white kabuki makeup on his face darkens his lips a bit and then dresses in a in a uh kind of like a tight black suit and then he went and and portray and gave that to david lynch david lynch was like that's perfect i love it and then they went and they, they, there you have it then you have robert blake so which is weird because this is a movie where essentially you know the wife gets killed life imitating art can we say sorry <laughs> sorry blake <laughs> so nonetheless just it it is definitely surrealistic in its presentation uh in line with you know I mean, but if you look at lynch's work obviously this is part of his los angeles trilogy with uh mulholland drive and inland empire so and the one thing i love about this movie and love about what lynch said about this is that the movie he said he deliberately intend now i don't know if they take this with a grain of salt this is from lynch's mouth himself 
that we as the audience are allowed to interpret this movie any way we want. There are some people who think that there is a cohesive narrative, a cohesive, strong narrative that runs that makes the whole thing make sense. There are some people who say that really it's kind of like a music video where there's a series of images that speak to what the artist is conveying at a particular given moment in time. And so that can shift given the context of the scene. And so the whole thing is completely ambiguous. You know, it can be whatever and you know, whatever it is. So whatever, whatever you want it to be in that respect, which I think is, oh, and Richard Pryor. Yeah, this was Richard Pryor's last movie. So the last movie he ever starred in, which is an interesting scene with him and Balthazar Zargetti. Um, but, uh, but yeah, it's, that's, I think that's the beauty of this one right here is that ev- all, all the elements play so well together. The way it's shot, the way, the way it's acted, the way it uh, definitely it's the way it's fucking scored. Man, I wish we had Johnny's uh, take on this one. The way it was scored and what Lynch was trying to say as far as this, you know, I, I, it's, it's the ultimate subjectivity of art. It's like looking at a piece of art and, you know, you take away what you can from it. Like, which is, which is something that I really enjoyed. Cause by the way, the soundtrack of this film is phenomenal. Cause you're fucking phenomenal. David Bowie, Romstein, nine inch nails, smashing pumpkins. And it just keeps going from there. So even going with like, Hey, this is just a series of music video. This is like a, a disproportionate music video or psychedelic adventure completely fits and makes sense for that. Cause I mean, as soon as, the, as soon as the soundtrack came out, I bought the CD. Oh yeah. Yeah. Well, it's you see, Okay. So it's, so it's fascinating because um, for those, she didn't get mentioned, uh, she didn't get mentioned in the original cast, but for those who don't know, she had a very, very small role in this film. Like, like, you know, uh, um, uh, Richard Pryor had a very small role in this. And the, the film also stars Jack Keeler and Henry Rollins. Henry Rollins is in this film. Giovanni Rabisi is in this film. Uh, he mentioned uh, Gary Busey. Lou Eppolito is in this, who was actually a cop who was a, who moonlighted for the mob back in the day. But, and Marilyn Manson and Twiggy Ramirez were also in this playing porn stars. So... Because the, the film is the film is extremely graphic in both its depictions of, of violence and of sex. Not to mention that um, Michael Massey is in this. Michael Massey played Fun Boy in The Crow. You might remember him from that. He was in this as well. So there's a lot of people that you will recognize. And one of them, she had a very, very tiny role. It's kind of a blink and you miss it moment. Is um, I'll make sure I don't want to. I don't want to uh, forget. Uh, oh, son of a bitch, Jennifer Syme was Jennifer Syme. And this is this is one of those movies that kind of like plop that I'm oh, sorry plop that kind of like dropped at a time when there was some interesting shit going on uh, in Hollywood at the time. There's you know, there's connective tissue all over the place. It's almost like this film is imitating kind of like Los Angeles life, which is weird both in its making and in its, in its, and, it, and in its depiction. Jennifer Syme, for people who don't know, was the is it was that was a record it was a basically a music executive and she worked as a personal assistant for a number of for a number of bands i think she, for uh um for red hot chili peppers for uh, uh for uh, uh i can't remember his name anyway she was heavily in uh, heavily in the music scene she is also widely considered the woman who was the love of keanu reeves's life he was the one who tragically died in a car accident and fundamentally kind of shifted Keanu Reeves because apparently, you know, he was devastated by the, by, by the, by losing her. They were friends for a long time. They dated and apparently she was the love of his life. 
it was Jennifer Syme who got the attention of David Lynch via a short that she did. And that that caught her attention. Caught her attention. They became friends. And it was Jennifer Syme who was, because of her contacts in the music industry, influenced the soundtrack to this movie. The reason that we got Reznor and Manson and Bowie and all the people that we did as a part of this movie is because of Jennifer Syme informing uh, uh, Lynch about these bands and saying, hey, check out these bands. I think these will work for your script. He listened to them and said, yes, let's run. He was like, yes, let's run with this. I love these. I love these songs. And I thought that was beyond fucking cool because a lot of the soundtrack, uh, a number of the songs were written specifically for Lost Highway, which I think is really fucking cool. That Reznor and I think uh, Reznor and Manson, um, yeah, I would say the Perfect Drug and Driver Down yep. were specifically composed like for this movie, and uh, and then of course you also had like Lou Reed, Smashing Pumpkins, and Romstein on as well, and I love how he utilized Romstein in this to the to, yeah. to the effect in the scenes that he did. It's fucking great. The balance is amazing. So, well, it's it is really interesting you bring up the music scene because the music scene in the early to mid '90s was actually pretty small. You had these they had these nightclubs. Some of them were dive bars. Some of them were a little bit bigger. And these were the places to play. And you had like Nine Inch Nails. You had Manson. You had Tool. You had Rage Against the Machine. You have photos of you have photos of tom morello in a dive bar watching maniard sing of tool nice. like in 92 93 and then they would hang out like afterwards and then on top of that and when one of them got big then you get the introduction to deftones so you just had this community of all these bands that was just together. So pretty much all you had to do was get into that one small group, which clearly she did. And then you get these, all these big name bands because they all just hung out and knew each other. You, It's not like today where you have such this online streaming and there's all, there's millions upon millions of people that on, on Spotify, whatever you had to work you get noticed in the industry back then because you had the past gatekeepers of record labels. Right. So it's amazing that all of this was able to come together. You get one of the best soundtracks that's ever come out. So something that's important, I think, and, and I didn't want to dive too deep into it. So, but Aaron Reese makes mention of it is that David Lynch essentially advocates for transcendental meditation, uh, for tapping directly into the subconscious and then puts it on film as directly as possible while attaching narrative to it. And I agree with that. You see a lot of those themes in many of you see them in Blue Velvet. You see them in, uh, obviously, in Eraserhead. You see them in uh, Twin Peaks. Across the board, he has utilized that technique to great effect and to convey these stories that are as much about context as they are about uh, you know, concrete events. That it's it's situational stuff that you, you have to kind of like suss out for yourself how you're, play, you're playing with your own mind and shit like that, which is why I... I have always been a huge fan of David Lynch. I love what he tries to convey, and I love trying to like figure. I, I love, there are movies you can spend time with, which is what's brilliant. That's what I like most about about Lost Highway. It's the movie that you can spend an inordinate amount of time with. I have my own narrative when it comes to like like what's going on in this, and that a lot of it is allegorical. That what we are seeing is essentially a movie about identity, 
and that when we co- how our identities or how we cope, how our identity, the identity we think we have, the one we put forward, how we cope with trauma to a degree that it fundamentally alters our scope of reality, which I think is what is is what is what Bill Pullman is going through, all the way up to the point to the extreme nature that he actually shifts, you know, that he disappears for a while and someone else is there. And then they carry on and then, but there's a unique connectivity throughout all of it. And uh, which I think uh, there's a connectivity between all of us, which I think is portrayed by Patricia Arquette's character and that she's playing essentially the same person with two different names. You know, that that's always there, that the threat is always there. So it's really, really fascinating shit. That's a movie that could be deeply explored. Like what exactly is the role of, you know, Robert Blake? What exactly is happening with Bill Pullman's character, with Frank? What is happening there? And of, you know, not to mention with the with the frenetic manic scenes that David is known for putting into his films, like you know in Blue Velvet with the big with the uh, with Frank's big freak out there with uh, with the road rage scene in this one, every single one of his movies has one of those big you know like like you know, Killer Bob in Twin Peaks provided all the mania you needed. He covers the breadth of the human experience, which is fucking beautiful. Sarcasm says, at the risk of repeating myself, David Lynch is the undisputed master of what the fuck did I just watch? Agreed. Yeah, <laughs> yep. Amazing right. stuff. So, we have talked about Robert Blake and the mystery man. I want to ask the audience, who was the mystery man? Because it's very, un, it's very, I, I, I want to say unclear or vague, but it very leaves to decide who the mystery man was. Ah, I mean, it could be taken so many ways. Okay, so I don't know who you, you in the live chat, y'all in the live chat, or when you're if you're if you're watching this after the fact, I don't. I I know everybody's got their opinions. Okay, I believe if I were to put it into kind of like psychological terms, I believe that Robert Blake, that the character of Robert Blake, is uh Bill Pullman's character. Uh, um, son of a bitch, I lost it. Fred. I believe that Robert Blake is Fred's id because watching this, going back and watching this again, because I hadn't seen it in years, going back and watching this again, I saw parallels that were drawn by the writer of Mr. Brooks that I think Lost Highway was an influence on that on that uh, Kevin Costner serial killer film, Mr. Brooks. I think Lost Highway influenced that film in some ways. I think that the the mystery, like the 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 mystery man that Robert Blake was that's literally what he's credited as in the in the uh, in the uh, in the credits. I think he is literally the personification of Fred's id. So what Fred wants, what Fred demands, and only that, and that's why he comes and goes. As necessary, when Fred is off, the id shows up. When Fred's in control, the id is the id isn't there, or or when when circumstances have gone beyond his control, he doesn't show up, and he only shows up when Fred finally gets his ultimate satisfaction, and that is when he kills uh, Mister Eddie, when he kills Mister Eddie at the end, when he kills him in the desert, you know, when that happens, the id shows up. When he's chasing down the girl, when after after you know after he converts from Balthazar, or after he converts from Pete back to Fred in the desert after they had their big you know sex scene, which fucking use of Dance of the Dead, man, holy shit, God fuck this the, the soundtrack in this was amazing, and so 
after that big scene, and then Patricia Arquette walks up back, walks up into the cabin, and then he converts back to to Fred, and then it's like he recognizes what's going on, and that rage comes in, and then there he is again. I think it's his id personified. That's my interpretation. I could be wrong. So I was, I, I was kind of I was kind of wordy on that. So go ahead. Because I was thinking the same thing. I got the vibe that it was part of Fred's psyche. Now, mine, it wasn't necessarily as deaf as it was the id, but I always felt like the mystery man was the one that it filled in the gaps for various things that he chose not to remember, that, that Fred chose not to remember, but the brain remembers. Uh, uh. Almost, almost that kind of thing where like we repress certain things or we choose not to remember, but the brain still learns it or it's still there. So you so that way you have these moments that it's like he wants to forget, but the brain is like, no, ah. you're going to do this. Okay. So that, that, that was just kind of my take on it. So Sir Chasm says, uh, temptation incarnate. Interesting. You know, here's an interesting parallel. And, I, and, and that kind of reminds me of this sarcasm, what you just said right there. <clears throat> do you think, and, and let us know in the comments <clears throat> if you agree with this. Do you think that there is a parallel? between the mystery man and killer Bob in the kind of like David Lynch mental universe. Because in Twin Peaks, killer Bob was essentially an entity <clears throat> from another kind of dimension that these entities, evil entities can sometimes jump, you know, across and they can possess people and make them do shit. And I think that there's a parallel though, because there's a scene when Bill Polt, when uh, Fred is talking to, um, when Fred is talking to uh, Andy at the party, and he says, "Who is that guy? A guy dressed in black?" And then Andy looks up at him, and he recognizes him, and he answers his question. I think that that's why I think it's his id, because the deeper the the things that drive us to that degree, Lynch has always implied that he believes there's a kind of like external force that plays into that somehow. And I think that there is kind of a, that whatever is driving Fred's rage and creating his confusion, like it did very much with Leland in Twin Peaks, is that which is possessing the end, possessing the individual known as, uh, known as the, the, who's the mystery man, okay? Possessing whoever that body is, which is why he's able to talk to him because he technically he called his house. He didn't hear him over the phone, he heard him from within himself. Yeah. That's my kind of like, I think there might be a parallel there. Let you know, explore it in the comments. Let us know in the comments because we've got one more we got to talk about and uh, we're getting a little, we're getting a little long. So left-handed Jedi says, reminds me of the mask of the red death with Vincent Price at the dance at the end. Very interesting. And Sir Kaz says, absolutely. Lynch has written a similar character in nearly all of his films. Examples available on request. Totally agree with that. Absolutely. So yeah. Yes. Aaron Reese says, this just occurred to me, but have you heard of a tulpa? Yes, tulpas, thought forms, entities created out of sheer will of imagination. Yes, so possible that he manifested it, that the mystery man is literally made manifest by Fred. Fred yeah, by, has, by Fred's rage and Fred's anxiety has literally manifested this entity that is essentially a part of him, but is external to him as well. He's externalizing that which he cannot uh, internalize. And because he's been doing it for a while, that's why Andy recognized the guy in black. That he'd seen him before. Because Fred's been doing this for a minute. Which is why 
his jazz is so like when he's, he's a jazz player because his jazz is so frenetic is that he's getting that shit out. So, oh, you can take this a number of ways. So many, we could end up talking about this movie for another fucking hour. I swear to God. So we really could. But so let us know your thoughts. Deep, deep film that you can go for miles on. So let us know your thoughts down in the comments below or weekendhorrorgmail.com. Love to hear what you think about this, this masterpiece of a film. Fucking love this movie. I love everything David Lynch does. I mean, he even loved Inland Empire. But, you know, Mulholland Drive is still kind of like my, still, mm, Naomi Watts fucking killed it. So let's, uh, let's go on to, let's move on to our next one. Our last one for the night, released February 23rd, 2007. We have the After Dark Horror Fest entry, The Abandoned. Let's check out this trailer. Let's cue up the terror tube. Well, that's a whole movie. <laughs> That's pretty much the movie. And they pretty much told you what's going to happen. The, the trailer fucking spoils this whole thing, I swear. Um, but fortunately, it came out in 2006, which is Eugene's favorite period of time. Favorite decade for horror films. <laughs> so, directed by Nacho Cerda. Written by Nacho Cerda, Kareem Hussein, and Richard Stanley. Ah, we know that name. Starring Anastasia Hilly, Carlos Rieg, Valentin Ganev, and and uh, the lovely, I love everything, Carl, Rod uh, Carl Roden who was the best Frankenstein possible in Frankenstein's army. Um, you may remember him as the lawyer in Blade 2, but he's been he's done, done a ton of shit. You know, he's, he's fantastic. So this entry to the After Dark Horror Fest, when that came out, um, follows a, a woman who's an American film producer who returns to her homeland of Russia to discover the truth about her family history. Um, this was a multi, uh, multi-country uh, production where it is, uh, I think it was between Bulgaria, Spain, and the United Kingdom is who, uh, who put this together. So, unfortunately, unlike the other After Dark Horror Fest, this film, I think, is one of the ones that kind of falls to the wayside. It was not as great. I love a lot of the After Dark Horror films. Um, there were some really fantastic ones in there. Uh, but this one, unfortunately, I think what hampered this is because Nacho Cerda uh, and Kareem Hussein, I don't see Richard Stanley doing this. I really don't. Because he's always, because as a writer, he's always that Richard Stanley's always trying to be as original as possible to try and bring his own ideas and his own kind of, you know, envision or his own vision to what he's writing. So, but obviously it came out the exact same year, uh, or it came out the exact same year, but it was heavily in development, heavily publicized. Um, and I'm talking about Silent Hill. So the whole like the house, you know, like, you know, reforming itself and altering at specific times. And, you know, the foreshadowing of that is, I think, is a rip completely off of Silent Hill because it was known about two years beforehand that Christoph Gans would be directing the Silent Hill film. And then that kind of got popular. It was pretty hot at the time. And then all of a sudden, I see that in this. It's essentially a haunted house film. It's a two-hander haunted house film that leaves way too much, way too much to the imagination and doesn't explore a lot of the themes that were that were necessary to make it scary, but instead explored a bunch of shit that would be more serviceable in a drama. You know, like the ties that bind, connections to family, long lost brother, you know, the you know, the dichotomy between America and Russia at the time, especially 40 years ago. There's a lot of elements in here that I don't think that would have made interesting filler for a horror film to provide backdrop, but instead they take they take front stage. And they then over because of the depth of them and how long they how much time they spend on them, it overshadows the horror elements. So it's odd. So it's almost like a drama with horror elements attached to it. 
you know, with a couple of scenes of some pretty of some pretty gnarly violence. Oh, this movie it's it was boring. <laughs> it just it really it just it was and it could have been so much better so many different ways and this is kind of the way it took uh the reason is is because if you're gonna do a haunted house movie then it needs to be atmospheric and i the atmosphere here never sold me you're not really getting that much disturbing imagery. There's nothing memorable about this film at all. Like you're there, you're just there's no moments. It's like, oh wow, that just really pulls you in because it focuses on the drama stuff. Of oh, well, the, this is the family that's going on. This is their ties that they have together. Um, the whole and then the whole point when the house like resets itself. Uh, the CGI looked terrible, and it wasn't just because it came out in 07. There's some Good films that came out 07 that have great CGI. Apparently, oh, yeah, v- VHS VHS did that shit better. Yeah, VHS was better. Um, it, it was just it just wasn't there. It just it it wasn't. I'm watching this film and I'm like, okay, that's boring. How many times did she have to fucking jump out of a window? <laughs> oh yeah yeah oh we gotta escape he's got to barricade the door oh now she goes to the window okay now the spirits are chasing her she's got to jump to the window again um it's like it looks like the same window too um yeah. yeah i just it felt it didn't feel lazy like the butcher's lazy like pure lazy filming this felt more like it didn't really have a vision and a voice for itself. That I'll was kind of, yeah. That was my takeaway from it. Well, after like, Dark Horror Fest, uh, to oh, see, this was the, I I struggled to understand why this particular one was selected for the 2006. Uh, to for the two the 2006 one was the inaugural uh, After Dark Horror Fest, and in that one. You, there were some really, really solid ones. You had uh, Wicked Little Things, which had Scout Taylor Compton in it, which was a pretty uh, creepy um, ghost story. You had Unrest, which was decent. You had Penny Dreadful, which uh, I thought was fantastic because that starred um, uh, son of a bitch, uh, Rachel, Mi- uh, Rachel Miner. Rachel Miner, uh, who's unfortunately, you know, she's uh, battling MS as we as occurred, but she's a fantastic actress, knew her from, uh, from Supernatural. Um, the Hamiltons, The Grave Dancers, uh, Dark Ride was decent. And this was kind of like the one that really didn't sit, you know, for some for some strange reason. And so it, it got in, and I don't I don't know. It's uh, maybe because they needed eight, and this was like the the next best one. Um, I myself found it was kind of like lackluster. It drags in way too many places uh, because what they're trying to convey. Because I think that what the writers and what the director are trying to convey in this are not is not is not a story that belongs in a horror is not that belongs fully in a horror film. I understand these themes informing a character and then making decisions based upon their internalization of the themes, but like I said, it doesn't feel like it's where it should be. I um, I will say this and I will I will agree with sarcasm. The only redeeming quality of the film is the makeup effects on the ghosts. Props to the people. The practical effects are actually fairly decent. The practical effects were on point. They knew what they were doing there. There was some good shit in there, you know, as far as the as far as the practical makeup effects. But the CGI was awful. The whole house coming back together, 
yeah, it was just kind of like why you know just not necessary um they a lot of the things that would have made them effective were cut out because of like well obviously because of, of a lack of budget because they didn't have a lot of money there i mean look at what they're shooting it's a single location in the middle of fucking nowhere and it's a dilapidated place that you know they can they can have fun with and play with but ultimately it's kind of like i it's a, such a shame because carl ronan's uh, uh his the acting is decent carl ronan was 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 decent anastasia hilly was 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 not bad I liked the story that they were trying to tell, but they left it with too much ambiguous. Like, how is the father doing this? How is the father setting it up so that the 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 kids, the the his children, now grown up children, can die and join them in this afterlife? And it's like this imposed purgatory. Where did that all come from? There's obviously this weird supernatural element to it where the father is in it, but it never explains any of that. It literally just goes. Dad freak. Mom wants to leave dad. Dad freaks out. Dad tries to kill family. Mom escapes with the children. Mom dies. And then the children get adopted by another family. And then they get the, end up getting split up. And now they, they come back to find each other. And then there's that ham handed outro of her daughter, mm -hmm. of her daughter speaking. Because the, the, the film opens with the daughter speaking at the beginning to kind of like set the tone. It's kind of like a prologue. So the daughter kind of is speaking, sets the tone, and then the the weird ham-handed, so heavy-handed outro to kind of like justify the name of the movie, which is weird. So what what do you think? Do you think this is a case of too many cooks in the kitchen? Maybe that it it's kind of hard. It's kind of hard to say. And using a situation like this, I would. I fault it with the director overall. Uh, maybe there just wasn't a clear vision. Maybe he focused on the wrong elements. Maybe the studio, he's talking about a multi-country effort put together. The problem when you have is a multi-country effort with a film is certain things only work in certain cultures. And... And I found this out by, I was doing a 48-hour film race once, and um, actually the one we met, the one the, you, you and I worked on where we met. Oh, yeah, yeah. And no, but By the way, by the way, a little trivia about me, that was the first time I've ever got a chance to write comedy. Really? And didn't know that. <laughs> I'd never written comedy before. I'd always written psychological horror, psychological shit, dark shit, and I was like, comedy. Let's write, a, okay, I'll write a comedy. And I took my, that was the first time I've ever written comedy. I realized I actually can do it. It, it, yeah, I mean, it was, it was raw, but I, it was raw, but you know, it's coming up the show at the top of my head, but what a, what a way to like dive in, but go ahead. Sorry. But yeah. So, and the, so the editor, so you have jail writing. I was a cinema. And then the editor was of, uh, Indian. And India, like straight, he was born and raised in India, came over here to work in film very recently. So he goes and he starts editing the film, and he edits a film not the way the director wants. And he's like, but in my culture, this is funny. Ah. But okay. he's like, well, in here, but in the U.S., it's not funny. You have to, the timing's different. So when you have, that's what, that's one of the things I'm kind of thinking, is like you have this multicultural approach where some things work in some cultures and don't work in other cultures because of the way we're raised. Right. So then what happens is you get, if you try to please everybody, you please no one. And it kind of just kind of got lost in this ambiguous blob of 
a mess of a movie. Uh-huh. <clears throat> I did not think about it. I did not think about it in those terms. The fact that this is a Bulgaria, uh, the fact that this was an international production between, um, I think it was Bulgaria, what did I say before? Bulgaria, Spain, and the United Kingdom. Obviously, their horror influences are going to be different. Um, the director, Nacho Cerda, uh, if you look at, uh, he's best known for a short film called Aftermath that, that was kind of like his claim to fame. He really hasn't done anything else. Like he did Aftermath and that it's a very controversial short film that he did. Very, very graphic. And then he directed this and it, has, it hasn't really done anything else since then. Since uh, I think he was planning on doing something back in 2011, but has not released anything. Like I don't, like I can't find much information about him. So, you know, I don't, I honestly don't know in that respect. But uh, I could see why the cultural interpretation would lead to a film that was a bit drier and focused on things that we, you know, focus on things that we wouldn't anticipate as being in a kind of story like this. So that that makes to, that makes total sense. Now, it was, I think it was, you know, and Richard Stanley as well. I mean, I get that because Richard Stanley's kind of, you know, from all intent, from all everything, from all reports, Richard Stanley is a very, very kind of like overbearing presence. He's not a bad guy. Well, no, he is a bad guy. You know, like, there's a reason why he, you know, uh, Spectre Vision cut ties with him. But he's not an asshole on set, but he's just a very overbearing kind of person. And, you know, in a tug of war between Nacho and Richard Stanley, Richard Stanley's going to win. So uh, you got like Richard Stanley doing an interpretation of what Nacho's interpretation of their kind of horror, which I think, I think too many cooks in the kitchen. Too many cultural references competing against one another with too many egos. It's kind yeah, of what I drags. Totally see that. Yeah, is what I think is what drags this movie down. The idea is solid, like the premise could work. I just think the execution was abysmal on this one. I mean, given the premise, young woman, a woman, um, cut off from her family, goes on a self-seeking journey to just rediscover her roots and reconnect with her family and, and, and find her family. Now that she's got this opportunity, she's going to find her family. And the, 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 the conflict with the daughter plays into that. That should have been a bigger play than it was in this, in this, in this movie. It's a footnote. And then you follow this character as they're on this solo journey where they're discovering themselves and they wind up coming across like this horrific scenario in which the event, the previous events of their life were, were ultimately tra were, were like horrifically tragic. There was murder and death and, and like, you know, pagan shit or witchcraft or whatever. And that the reason that she was separated was because someone stole her away and whatever. That would have been a much more interesting thing. I, I think, and you know, I think that would have been a much more entertaining. That that premise is solid, but you know the only thing that can the, the thing that can fuck up a, a premise is too many people thinking that their ver their version of the premise is is the best. So I think that's what really kind of jacked this movie up. It could have been so much better. It really could have been. I hate movies that are wasted wasted potential. You know. Yeah, because it's it sucks because even the crew still puts in the same amount of work. It takes just right. a month of work to make a bad movie as it does make a good movie. So you always hope that it's a good movie. And then when you have issues with the people at the top, that can just tank this. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Sir Kasdan brings up, I think, too many plot holes. Why would your own ghost try to kill you if it was already aware of how you die? I just didn't buy anything about the scripting. Yeah, it's just, it's just silly. You know, I think there's, that's why I said, like, that's why I think too many egos in the kitchen, I think is the problem here. 
not enough streamlining in the in the above the line. You know, knowing whose vision this is, where it's going to go, what's happening here. Maybe too much capitulation from the people who were from the individual. Nacho should have been the guy that everybody you know acquiesced to. It's his vision. The the writer typically doesn't. You know, I mean, depending upon politics, the writer typically doesn't walk in and be like, "This is how I want it." You hear stories about that where the writer comes in and says, "Why are you changing my fucking business? This is why it's blah, 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 blah. The shit went down with Stephanie Meyer, uh, and and uh, I think with Stephanie Meyer and uh, Twilight, and the shit went down with the chick who wrote Fifty Shades of Grey. You know, there's a reason the authors are not brought on set to be consultants. You know, because their job's done. Now it's time for the movie to get made, and it's a different beast, you know. Convey video like that, whatever. So, you know, I think too many cooks. That that, that you know, too many cooks. I think that's the issue. Too here. many that's cooks. The, yep. Yeah, I think that's the primary issue with this one. So the uh, you and you, oh, you you got the uh, the the CTA. So, no, well, I did the CTA Lost Highway, but anyways. Oh, you did. No, no. So it's my CTA. My bad. I introduced yeah. the one. Yeah. I introduced it. Yes, that's I did. So that's what I want because this movie is a euro is technically a euro horror. Uh, I'm curious because there are a number of euro horrors that do get it right, that do cross the pond to speak to both American audiences and the audiences back at home. So my curiosity is that this is an example of how that kind of fails. I think Eugene brought up an excellent point with the cultural kind of clash that resulted in dragging this thing, basically being an anchor that dragged this thing down. So my curiosity is, what is your out there? Let us know in the live chat or the uh, weekendhorror.gmail.com uh, or in the comments. What is your favorite Euro horror? Or what do you think has been the best Euro horror? Let us know uh, uh, in the comments or at weekendhorror.gmail.com. One of my favorite ones is a movie called Heartless with Jim Sturgis and Timothy Spall. It was, it was a fantastic uh, uh, British horror is an English horror. So really, really good shit. Uh, Left-handed Jedi brings up Hostel. Interesting. Very good. I like that. Yeah, I was like, a Hostel, good one. Uh, I was going to say Wreck. Oh, yes. Wreck, yes. Fucking A. Oh, God, Wreck is so good. Yeah, Wreck is amazing. Wreck is fantastic. All right. Well, you know what time it is. That's about it. And we're we're a little bit over, but that's okay. Uh, who, who gives a fuck if we go over? Why do I even mention it? But you know what time it is. Eugene knows what time it is. What time is it, Eugene? It's trivia time! You can't see me dance, so just picture it. <laughs> <laughs> Again. Sorry, I didn't hit pause. I didn't hit pause on the uh, on the uh, audio. My bad. I didn't mean to play it twice. If, Ra- if I don't know if Raven's in the chat, so I apologize, Raven. I didn't mean to. I didn't mean to run that twice. So that's my bad. All right, it is trivia time. We've got the live chat pulled up. So. The first person to get the correct answer to this trivia question gets a special item from the Week in Horror store. So listen carefully, get those Google fingers ready. Eugene, give them their trivia question. I promise you, this will not be as hard as last week because last week took fucking forever. (laughs) So I'm going to tell you right now, most of y'all should know this without Googling. Should. 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 If you're horror fans. So, the trivia question is, what cult classic body horror film kicked off the career of David Lynch? What cult classic body horror film kicked off the career 
of David Lynch. First person to comment below will win a prize from their weekend horror store. Yeah, I'm waiting for it. Boom. Bam! There it is. I Already. Knew it. Already. We had to go easy this time. See, it was an easy one. Last week, I've, it was just way too hard. Last week was hard, so I figured an easy one that people would just be like, ah, and people, yeah, we're going to get like, you know, people messing it up because they're typing so fast. Uh, but congratulations. Yes, wrote it, no less name, got it correct. It was Eraserhead. Eraserhead was the body horror film that kicked off the career of David Lynch. Aaron Reese said it was too easy. I had to give it. Aaron, did you, did you hear? I mean, were you here last week? Did you see how fucking long it took to get that goddamn trivia question answered? Fuck, man. It's like, you make it too hard or too easy, you know? I, I figured, you know, this would be, a, I figured an easy one was called for. And I see everybody's getting it correct. Sherry Tilly got it right. Casey Cooper got it right. Sarcasm got it right. I know a bunch of people. I'm surprised Jefferson Spatchcock wasn't up in here. Yeah, I, I, he may have had to, he may have had to pop it out. Uh, Sherry Tilly says, last week was like eight minutes. It was like, yes, it was like damn near 10 minutes you're waiting for a fucking answer. We almost we're like, gave up. We're like, yeah, we almost, I was like, dude, should I create, should there be like a timer, you know, so that we don't like, it's like sitting here for like half an hour. Somebody going to answer the question. Nah, 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 nah. But way to go. Wrote it in LS name. Congratulations. I've got your name down. And we will print, we will print that up and get that shipped to you ASAP. Congrats. Yes. Eraserhead. Good fucking movie. As a matter of fact, also, oh, I, Aaron Reese says, I'm Mr. Google Fingers. I fear no trivia. <laughs> <laughs> then why didn't you answer it? He can't. Oh, that's right. He can't because you can't win. <laughs> <laughs> yes, if you are affiliated with the show, you're done. <laughs> Ronaldo Sam says, and I got it without Googling. That's because you are a pro. You are a fucking pro. You absolutely are. All right. Well, congratulations again. Wrote it no, no last name. Well done. Gabba Gabba to you. We'll get that printed and shipped out to you ASAP. And that Horror Fiends is going to conclude this episode of the Week in Horror Podcast. We want to thank you all so much for joining us. We truly hope you enjoyed the show. And if you did, smash that like and subscribe button. Be sure to hit that bell so that you never miss a future episode. Join us next week. I'm very excited when we look back at the early Clint Howard classic Evil Speak, the psychic serial killer horror Unspeakable, Karloff's classic The Walking Dead, and the comedy slasher Doom Asylum. Be sure to check out Josh Olsen's store over at BadSamurai.Story. He does all the awesome artwork that you see splattered all over our merchandise where you can find over at our Teespring. For more from Week in Horror, check out all the bloody links down in the description. Follow us on the socials for the Daily Splatter. Join our Discord for watch parties and all kinds of big announcements. And support the show through channel memberships here, Super Chats, PayPal, or even through our Patreon for as little as $1 a month. You see, it's been a long time. It's been quite a while since we've announced a new Patreon. So be, be the next person. Get that announcement here live on the show. What are you waiting for? Join us. As always, thank you to each and every single one of you for being the greatest audience a horror film podcast could possibly have. I am JL. And I'm Eugene. We will see you all next week. And as always, stay scared. <laughs> hey. I promise you, he's waving by. <laughs>